Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. little ditty was The Fly by Chubby Checker from the best of Chubby Checker, Cameo Parkway, 1959-1963, available on iTunes. Welcome to this episode, episode 18 of the Classic Horrors Club. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I am Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. You know, we rarely play an opening song that doesn't have some meaning for our episode. So, Rich, why did I play a song called The Fly? It could possibly have to do with the fact that we are talking about the Fly Trilogy, the original Fly Trilogy. The Fly from 1958, Return of the Fly from 59, both starring Vincent Price, coincidentally celebrating the birth month of Mr. Price, uh, born on May 27th. And then, of course, Curse of the Fly in 65, which, as we'll talk about, is the oddball of the bunch. We're back on track. We had a couple of special episodes. We recorded two episodes back-to-back quite a a while ago. But we're back on track with our old business and our regular format. And uh, let's just get right into it, because I'm thrilled to say we have quite a bit of feedback today. We'll get to that in just a minute. I first want to welcome, though, the new members of the club on our Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Welcome to Alan Kempner and Richard Alvey. Glad to have you. We're picking up more people, more posts on there, starting to have some fun, and that's really all we want to do with it. So look us up on Facebook, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Yes, welcome to the club, gentlemen. We're happy to have you here. That's a great place to leave feedback. You can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com or call us like some people did this week. The number for that is 616-649-2582, 616-649-CLUB. You can also leave MP3s if you have the technology to do so and just send those via email and we will be sure to include your feedback in the show as well. A couple items of old business from the past two episodes. We were talking about Alan Napier and how he played Alfred on the Batman 66 TV show, what we know now as Batman 66. We didn't know if he ever used his last name Pennyworth on the show. And I did look it up from the DC Comics wiki page. Wiki Is it Wikia or Wiki? I don't know. Yes, well. Wikia. It's spelled, <laughs> yes. Uh, I bought some cheap furniture there one time. But, yeah. Anyway, the, the wiki page for DC Comics, Alfred never used a surname on screen and was never referred to by one. However, he is given the surname Pennyworth in the Batman 66 comic books. I know many of you have been up at night worried about that. 
Um, we also talked about Karloff. We weren't sure after the movies we talked about it around the 1946 area, what was next after he emerged from that time period. And his first film after that really was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty in 1947. He played Dr. Hugo Hollingshead. And then he did some kind of unique, not necessarily horror movies. He was in Lured with Lucille Ball. Have you ever seen that? I have. It, he's got a small segment. Wonderful. And yeah, it, I like that But movie. the movie overall, it's, it's average. Yeah. Lucille Ball is not necessarily someone you'd expect to find in a suspense thriller. But she does well with yeah, it. Yeah, I enjoy that. He was in Unconquered. He played the chief of the Senecas. Dick Tracy meets Gruesome. Taproots. He played Tishamingo. Then he went into his TV period with a couple of exceptions. Then he was up to the 50s, and that's where it was B-movies, Roger Corman, and television series all the way from there. That really was, after that peak activity for him, he kind of branched out before he settled back into more of a the genre and everything. I, I have Taproots and Unconquered, but I've never actually sat and watched them. I, I finally tracked them down. Within the last six months, they were on YouTube. Uh, they're harder films to find, and he's got a supporting role in there. However, Dick Tracy versus Gruesome is the best of that series of Dick Tracy films. There were four films. I think he did two or three chapter serials and then did four films. That one is the, the fourth and last and would be by far the best because it's got Karloff in it. If you're going to watch any of those, watch that one because it's got Morris in it, and that's, it's well worth checking out at least once. And it's public domain, so it'll cost you nothing. Yeah, I like that one as well. And then uh, we wondered in 1946 what did win the Oscar of the nominees, and I think you had this right. It was the best years of our lives. Yeah, I think I Yeah, Yeah, so anyway. Uh, and I guess really the last little thing of old business is the Rondo Awards. Uh, we've speculated a lot. we talked an awful lot about it. The winners have been announced. You know, I, I think the only thing left to say is a, a hearty congratulations to all of the winners. Some of the people we were hoping to win didn't, but others did. We certainly want to give a shout out to all those who have won and look forward to see what next year's rondos will bring. I was going to say start consuming things now to be on next year's list of nominees. So let's get to our first feedback. It's uh, from our dear friend Jonathan Angarola. And he will be commenting on three episodes ago, I believe. His voicemail came in just after we recorded the last episode. So um, here's Jonathan. Hey, guys. It's Jonathan from Astoria, New York. Uh, just calling in again to congratulate you on a couple more fabulous episodes. Uh, the Karloff episode and the Laurie episode were just great. Um, I have to admit, I have not yet seen The Old Dark House, which is kind of unbelievable. I know but it's on my list. Um, it's kind of a, a no-brainer for uh, fans of classic horror, obviously. And it looks like there's a beautiful Blu-ray out, which I have to pick up. Um, Devil Commands, I have not seen either. Um, it's a movie based on your coverage I would put on my list, but maybe not something I feel like I need to see right away, but down the line, I'm sure I'll catch it. Targets. Uh, I think I got with you guys offline about this. I didn't, had not seen Targets before, but based on your podcast, I went out and saw it. And wow, what a strange little movie. Um, two seemingly unrelated stories stitched together, but pretty effectively. And I actually really enjoyed it. And I did not realize, I mean, I forgot that 
Peter Bogdanovich, if I'm saying his name right, very famous director, um, was in the film. Um, you know, as soon as he popped up, I said, oh, that's, is that Peter Bogdanovich? And it turned out it was. And he was um, really good. And I was positively tickled watching the scenes with Karloff and Bogdanovich getting a little uh, getting a little drunk in the hotel room and passing out in the same bed. I got really, I really got a kick out of that. Um, as far as other Karloff films, I really enjoy. Um, aside from his obvious ones, uh, his obviously turns in Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I would say The Invisible Ray. Uh, I think he's great in that. I think that's kind of an underrated film. Uh, Black Sabbath. He's a lot of fun. Uh, and as that's kind of like your late Karloff and the body snatcher really stands out. Um, his character, John Gray is just really makes your hair stand up on end. At least they did for me. First time I saw that film, uh, body snatcher is great. And he is quite creepy in that. Um, the Lori coverage was also great. I learned a lot about Lori that I had not, uh, known before. Um, tale of terror, great blend of horror, and comedy, uh, probably leaning towards more, more towards the comedy side of things. And you guys know I love the Vintners convention scene between him and Price. Uh, it is just, oh, I get giddy. It's just too funny. And both of them are just great in that scene and, uh, just a real pleasure. Um, Mad Love, uh, film I'd seen probably ironically just a little before your, your podcast a few weeks back or a few months back now, I guess. Uh, Mad Love is also a great little film. Uh, one I had only discovered recently. I think Laurie in that is, um, you know, it's kind of beyond just arrested development. I mean, his character is obviously obsessed um, and is brilliant, but highly um, dysfunctional to say the least, but a great little turn. And I feel like Laurie in general is an actor. He's been so caricatured, which you guys talked about in the podcast. Uh, you know, in the Looney Tunes cartoons and elsewhere where we kind of lose sight of, um, you know, his talent and some range, too. Um, he has shorter turns in, um, obviously, Casablanca. Um, I kind of enjoyed him in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea as well, you know, where he gets to play against type. You know, he's one of the... Uh, you know, one of the officers on the sub, and while he may not be absolutely perfect for that role, I really enjoyed um, getting to see him in a atypical role for him, especially late in his career where, you know, people had, uh, you know, expectations of what you would get and not get from Laurie or what roles he would he would play. So um, I enjoyed him in that as well. Also loved the, the song you guys played in the Laurie podcast, Mad Love, a very catchy tune, uh, very appropriate. And um, that's about all I have to say. Uh, I'm looking forward to the next podcast, which I have a feeling is going to be very soon. Uh, I think you guys are doing something related to Planet of the Apes. I know we're coming up on the uh, big anniversary, 50th anniversary, which is awesome. Uh, anniversary of actually several great films. That, 2001, Destroy All Monsters for us kaiju fans, uh, among others. So anyway, keep up the great work, guys. Really looking forward to the next podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jonathan. We appreciate you calling in. You had some additional insights into Peter Laurie that I appreciate. We It seems, I don't know that we got as in-depth with him as we did with when we did Karloff, but uh, I appreciate your comments, and you were treading 
a, a fine line there, and I'm glad you came out on the side of liking targets because, <laughs> as you know, that is just a, a all-time favorite of mine. Keep up the homework. You know, we always try to give everyone a heads up about what our next episode or two is going to be, always at the end of, of the episode, so you can have roughly a month to track these films down. Sometimes they're harder to find. Sometimes, you know, it's going to require a little bit of effort. But uh, I think that it's one way to keep everyone involved. And uh, as well, I know you do a good job of letting people know on Facebook when you're watching the various movies. And that's a good reminder, I think, to, to people to, hey, you know what, That's I've got to watch the Fly movie because Jeff's watching it. And Jonathan's email... Uh, voicemails are always I feel like he must be taking notes during our podcast which I really couldn't imagine a more excruciating exercise but he always has so much knowledge and comments on specific things so I I appreciate that I feel like he's really interacting with us and that's awesome yeah that's definitely uh I know I'm sure that there are those of you out there who might be a little intimidated by leaving a voicemail or something, but uh, please don't. Uh, we want any and all comments, and, and we'll be more than happy to play it on the show and, and get to know you better. And Let us know what your favorite movies are. Let us know what uh, your least favorite are, or maybe what's on top of your wish list. I know he was talking about the old Dark House Blu-ray. and The thing is, is that you don't have to have seen every classic horror movie to be a part of the classic uh, horrors club, because I know I haven't. Well, I can say I've seen, you know, most of Karloff, most of Lugosi's. There's still a lot of genres. Paul Nashi has barely been touched. Mexican horror films, you know, barely been touched. So there's a lot more films out there that you and I both want to see. Now, that's the fun thing about this show, because I think I've introduced you to some films. You've introduced me to some films that you've seen. And uh, or something we've also watched the first time together. So, and we've gotten some recommendations too on the Facebook group page of movies to do in the future. So yeah, yeah, that's so, great too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're ten minutes in. I, I'm sorry. I'm going to take us on a slight derailing. Uh, it's you this time, yes. not me. Well, and you know, I always say, well, we can edit that out, and I never do. But if you're not aware, on Monster Kit Radio, Steve Turek and Derek have a poll for Monster Kids to pick their top. I think twenty. At, at this point in time, what are your top 20 monster movies? Up to uh, 67 or 68, I think. So it was an interesting exercise because I went through there and I have for years and years and years ranked my movies on the Internet Movie Database. That's how I keep track. And so when something like this comes up, I run a quick report, 10 to 9, and you know the first 10 horror movies I come to that are ranked high, those are the ones that go on a, a top 10 list. Interesting thing I learned was I have a real inclination towards the 70s movies. I had many, many more movies in my top, you know, that I ranked a 10, a 9, or an 8 that were all from the 70s. I had to go deeper down into the 7s and 6s to find, you know, the the true classic stuff that we talk about, which is, I love them all. It's just over time you start to see patterns like that. And I surprised myself. I wouldn't have realized that I have sort of that a little bit of favoritism, I guess, to the 70s movies. I have the same thing with the 80s, because even though I, I will prefer an old, creaky, black-and-white horror film over anything else, but for me, as like being a child of the 70s and 80s, I, and I, 80s is when I really started watching horror films, I have a love for those, and so it's, it's kind of, you know, I used to say guilty pleasure, but we don't want to say that anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. there shouldn't be guilty yep, about nope. it. So, I'm a, you know, I... Yeah, those the slasher flicks of the 80s, 
you know, I, I have a special affinity for, and, and so I kind of will sometimes gravitate towards those and, you know, I, I'll go through cycles where I just want right. to devour all the nightmare movies or devour the Omen movies or, you know, at least some of the early Hellraiser films. So yeah. Or the Chucky films, you know, you know, we all have those, those things that we kind of gravitate towards. And for me, it's that time period that's watching those late at night on HBO when I, when I wasn't supposed to be. So I enjoy, I enjoy that time period. Seventies is, is a little weaker for me. I later seventies. Yes. But some of the early, 70s kind of graphic and, and a little more obscure horror films i've i've kind of gone in and out over the years there, there's a few that that i really enjoyed i can't even remember the name of them there's there's a the freak maker with uh donald pleasance and a pre doctor who tom baker first of many actually that may be my only doctor who reference no there is a couple oh yeah, I've got multiple, and I've got a Star Trek reference. Uh, see, and I didn't find any, so it's your I, turn this I, I time. Just, I'll say it now, folks. I'm covered for this episode. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, you discover some of these films, and I know one of those uh, we're talking about doing the next couple months is Twilight People. It's a movie that I was never even aware of until you mentioned it, and it just came out on Blu-ray, and I have purchased it, and I'm looking forward to checking it out because there's some kind of hidden gems in the 70s, early to mid-70s, that tend to get overlooked a lot. Speaking of Steve Turek, and by the way, I recommend everyone go to monsterkidradio.net and put in your two cents on this poll. I think it's going to be really interesting. I think Steve's going to compile the data, and and the plan is to do it every year and kind of see how that changes, because I think any Monster Kid on any given day, their top 20 movies will be different. So, you know, over time, we can kind of see how tastes change. Go do that. That'll be great. Anyway, Steve left us a voicemail, and uh, let's go ahead and play that now. It refers to our more recent episodes where we covered uh, Rondo Hatton and Planet of the Apes. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Rich. This is Steve Turk calling. Um, been enjoying the last couple episodes, Rondo Hatton and the Apes episode. Those are very good. I, I, I never really knew much about Rondo Hatton until I heard you guys talking about him, and um, I'm going to look out for some of those movies that are on Amazon Prime that you mentioned and watch those. Also, I've always been a big Planet of the Apes fan, so I've been really enjoyed um, hearing some of that different um, things from the, uh, the production side that you guys did on your Apes episode. And, of course, um, Jeff, I really enjoyed those pictures that you posted back when you did your trip. It, 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 made, it made me jealous that I wish I could have been there, too, but you can't be everywhere. And it's always nice that at least somebody was able to report back to the rest of us about um, that fun experience. Also, I want to let you guys both know that, yes, I have finished all the Dark Shadows episodes. I finished them a few days back, and I've done all the movies, the uh, two with the original cast and the Johnny Depp Dark Shadows movie are now done. Um, can't wait to talk to you guys about the journey through it. And speaking of that journey, nearing the end of the journey, that last 30 days, um, with a lot of personal stuff going on, it was nice. To, but I want to thank both of you guys again for reaching out and, um, you know, helping me along through that um, that tough period. You know, it was very appreciated. And um, uh, it makes me feel like with Monster Kids, you know, like Derek always says, like we're all part of our tribe and um, that kind of stuff. It was making it nice to know that you guys are there to have my back. Now, of course, I see just posting homework, so – I'm going to be watching the Fly movies, and um, I'll probably give you guys a call back 
with uh, my different opinions about the Fly movies later. So I'll talk to you soon. Have a great new episode. Have a great next episode. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, Mr. Turek, for leaving a fantastic voicemail, the first of a few that we're going to be playing this week. If we can introduce some people, like we know, we talked about Rondo Haddon. Rondo is not something that's talked about on a lot of other shows. That's something we kind of discuss is that, you know, some of the movies we talk about will be heard and discussed on other podcasts, but some of the stuff we've done has been unique to our show. And it's always fun. I know when I listen to a podcast and I'm turned on to a movie that I've never heard about before. One movie in particular that comes to my mind is a movie called Unman Wittering in Zygo, which is an early 70s British horror slash thriller. Obscure little thing. I don't think it's ever been released officially on home video, but it was mentioned on a podcast that I listened to many years ago. And I tracked down a copy, and it's kind of, again, a film that I love for just, if no other reason, the fact that it's obscure and isn't talked about a whole lot of, by a whole lot of people. I'm looking forward to going back to Twilight People because I've not heard of it, never heard it talked about in another show. And so if we can do the same, you know, with whether it's Peter Laurie, uh, educating people on Peter Laurie, giving you a few ideas of films to watch, Rondo Hatton, then I feel we're... we're we're contributing to the podcast community that we're now a part of. And I think that that's, it's fun. And then we want to hear what your thoughts are after you see these films. You know, they, you may be horrified at some of these films, you know, you know, you might have nightmares from, from Willard uh, and rats in the middle of the night or (laughs) the song that was in the second film. We don't need to remind me of what that song was, but yeah, that's, that's the whole fun of what we do. So uh, thank you for your comments and keep keep it up and keep letting us know what you think. And I know, as I said, we've got some other voicemails uh, from you later on in the show and your thoughts on the movies we're talking about today, the movies about the fly. Yeah, I really appreciate you, Steve, uh, doing the homework. I, I know it's all in fun, but that is just really so cool that, that you'd watch them before so that you can then participate. I do have to tell you to be careful, though, because if, if we're taking this little metaphor really far and we're talking about homework and teachers and students, you better not disagree with me anything or I'll have to slap your hand with a ruler. This would be like, if we had a sound cue, it's like, oh, like yeah, a smack right sure. now, yeah. but yeah. We, so. we don't. Our budget isn't that high. So. Yeah. Guess that's it for old business and, and feedback at the moment. Let's take a break and we'll be right back. <laughs> Everyone in the theater, hold on family to his seat, please. Stop it! Stop it! I'm Vincent Price. What unearthly horror did that girl gaze upon? What manner of incredible thing walked beneath that hood? It would be unfair at this time to show you any more of what went on in that laboratory where a man actually dared to play God. So fantastic words can't begin to describe it. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it when the fly comes your way. Killed Andre. Please help me. 
call the police and... The charge can only be murder. There were no mistresses. I had no lovers. Why did you kill him? God, don't let it get out. Inspector, Inspector, it's in the garden. Come quickly. As God is my witness, I saw the thing. It's unbelievable. I shall never forget that scream as long as I live. The fly is on its way. Watch out for it. It's far beyond anything your mind could ever conceive. Helene Delambre confesses to murdering her husband, but refuses to tell the authorities why. Obsessed with flies, she finally tells her brother-in-law, Francois, the truth about what happened. Through a series of flashbacks, we see her husband, André Delambre, conduct experiments with teleportation. When a careless accident causes André to physically transform, he begs Helene to help him make things right. We're back. Richard, what do you make of The Fly? I've seen this movie before, and it is a classic. One of numerous films that Vincent Price did in 59. So he's not necessarily the lead, but he's a solid supporting actor in this movie. This is a classic, and I love it. The ending, which I guess we'll say spoiler alert, because (laughs) I'm sure at some point we'll talk about it, if you haven't already. It's still, I think it holds up, and I think it is still one of the most chilling endings to a classic or modern day horror film. It is, it's done, I think, as serious, I mean, yeah, I mean, you get kind of a chuckle a little bit, but it's kind of horrific, and you don't get the same feel when they pull it, they try to pull that off again in Return of the Fly. It's a little different, done a little different, but to me it was a little more cartoonish in, in Return of the Fly, and I think here it is, it's it's a truly, because you just kind of put yourself in that position. It's a horrific end. So I think it's a classic that I absolutely love. And I'm, I, I don't want to say I'm mixed on it because I love it too, but I just, I guess it had been much longer than I had thought than when I had seen it before. I had it totally mixed up in my mind. Any picture I see of the fly is the big head that really comes into play in Return of the Fly. And I had always thought that was from The Fly. I think I forgot it was in color. Uh, I knew Vincent Price wasn't the villain. I know he wasn't The Fly, and villain's the wrong word for that. But I don't know. It was just, it was really like, I had really almost forgotten anything about it. So it was almost like a new experience. But my first impression was that it was such a, I mean, it was like a, prestige picture almost. I mean, it was in color, Cinemascope, the 20th Century Fox fanfare, uh, written by James Clavell, who, I mean, Shogun and Great Escape to Sir with Love. It was above and beyond, really. And if you think about it, really much more sort of the love story and the drama between the couple, even though hor- horrific things happen. And the horror element is... is- downplayed at times as the movie progresses i mean you'll have these bursts of horrific moments but then yeah that's definitely it's a classy film i guess yeah. and definitely compared to what a lot of other sci-fi horror films being made in the 50s which were more times than not b class or lower 
this is a, an A-level film in many, in many counts and, and elevates it above a lot of its contemporaries. And I think, partly I think it just, again, I think it was in color, the way that it was filmed, it had a bigger budget. And then you add that star power of Vincent Price, who doesn't have to be the monster of the flick or the mad scientist, but just his presence in the film, I think, elevates almost any movie anyway. But this movie, you know, it, it definitely moves it up to uh, to kind of a top-tier film. I think the special effects were done well for what you could do at that time. I, I thought, I know you're more of a fan of the, of the mask from Return of the Fly, whereas I think the, the one in The Fly is, is a little bit better. But that could also be because it's in color, and you don't get the color effects from the uh, second film. And, I, and if there are any color shots of it, I've never seen a picture of it. And that, you know, and it's always the same with anything. You're battling your expectations. But I was waiting for that moment when the black cloth came off his head and you saw that familiar fly. It was almost, I mean, I'd forgotten it wasn't the same mask. And I was a little disappointed. I was like, oh, where's the where's that big goofy mask that I love? And let me be clear, too, about the drama romance thing I said. I, I think I say that just because it's really from the perspective of um, his wife, Patricia Owens, is the actress. You know, it's the mystery of she assisted in killing him and why. And then his story really is told in flashbacks. So it's just it's sort of a different perspective. And at first, well, at first glance, it's a horror movie. But I don't really think it's as straight horror as most movies of the time, like you said. No, and I think, well, even the the initial merging of uh, of Andre and the fly. We don't see that. We don't see that experiment happen. We see the after effects, which I think obviously enhance the dramatic moment of when the face of, of the mutated Andre is revealed. I think that in any other horror film, a mad scientist, you always see the experiment. And I think the fact that they didn't in this one kind of downplaying that mad scientist feel and the horror element a little bit, I think, again, kind of plays to the elevation of this film from not being just a run-of-the-mill monster mad scientist flick to being something a little bit classier, maybe not as horrific, but something a bit more mainstream for the time. Plus, he was not a mad scientist. I mean, well, no, he, he, he was legitimately doing it for a good purpose he yeah. had no ulterior motives there were no secrets which in some of Karloff's films well, he's true. he I mean some, he's not always twisted sometimes his intentions are are better than it is in others so you know but yeah I mean he, he was certainly there was nothing intentional or, or twisted about anything that he was doing and, and what happens is an accident purely when spoiler alert Andre Delambre is is merged with a fly there i've just ruined a you know 60 year old movie which uh this yeah this is the 60th anniversary of this film i just realized that when i'm sitting here looking 1958 yeah this would be the 60th anniversary kind of surprised we're not hearing anything uh maybe later on this year but we uh, should have put some more fanfare to our uh show today. i guess we should have maybe in july because it originally came out july or maybe 16th. we planned this all along yeah. yes yes <laughs> yeah we can take credit when there's fanfare later on absolutely uh, the other thing i wanted to say was you know about the special effects again in my mind i can picture that little fly with the human's head crying help me help me that didn't live up to my memory in fact 
again, I kind of liked the effect better in Return of the Fly than. Oh no! Well, the the I think I think Return of the Fly looked so cheap. Uh, but it you could in the Fly you couldn't even. I don't know. It looked badly superimposed on there. You couldn't even really tell. It didn't look like that. It was really part of the fly. Well, and I know Return of the Fly looked like a plastic head on a fly, sort of, but it looked organic and real. And I, I was kind of disappointed in the reveal at the and end. Maybe that's the that's color versus black and white. Maybe Could black be. and white was able to cover up some of the imperfections. I guess for me, I thought Return of the Fly looked a bit goofier. And, well, here's an interesting story about the, the very first time I saw The Fly was many, many years ago. I recorded it off of AMC on videotape, and it ran over the end time. And so, literally, the tape stops <laughs> with the very first, help me, help me, and then it stops. And I remember sitting there watching it and have never seen it before. And had no clue what was going on. And I was like, what? What happened? Okay, I guess the movie was over with because it was kind of resolved more or less at that point. And it was many years later when I actually saw the full film and saw, you know, the true ending. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I had been missing out on this ending all of these years because I'd never read about it. I, you know, it was a film that I had never seen, never read about it course nowadays it's almost impossible not to know the ending and if you didn't we just ruined it for mm-hmm. you so but i always maybe that's i have a, i always have kind of warm memories about this is like because i just was so oblivious to that final scene so every time that it pops up i'm like gosh i love it it's just the screams and i guess maybe that's why i feel like like andre's screams are so horrific as opposed to Philippe is, I don't know, it just, it never comes across as horrific. It just kind of comes across for me as a little cartoonish. Here's a thought. We've talked in the past about knowing the endings of movies and does that make the movie less effective because you know the twist. I think maybe it's Planet of the Apes with the context. Yeah. And we talked about movies where, oh no, that doesn't ruin it just because you know it's coming. It's kind of fun to build up to that and notice things you didn't know before and all that. I would say this is a movie where knowing the end kind of works the opposite. Because here I was, like, wanting to see The Fly. Finally, we did. Oh, I was disappointed. Same would be, I know, I can't wait to see that human head on that fly. You know, that's going to be so awesome. And then it gets there, and it's like, eh. You know what I'm saying? Maybe it, it's this is working for me, at least, a little bit backwards than some other movies where there's a, a twist surprise ending. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This is one of those rare cases where where you and I are, are a little out of sync, yeah. which is okay. And um, and I know, and I say all this, and it sounds like I don't like the movie or something. I do. I I like the movie very much. It's my favorite of the three. I'm just saying this this all caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting this reaction, and it just was all because of it was not what I remembered and. I don't know if that's an objective way to judge a movie or not, but we've gone way uh, beyond any type of summary or credits or anything, so I don't know if we need to backtrack a bit and talk about that. Well, let's talk about the cast, because we've got a really good cast in this movie. Young David Hedison, who plays the lead character of Andre Delambre. Of course, if you're a, a fan of Irwin Allen television, you're immediately going to recognize him from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, 
did 110 episodes as the uh, character of Captain Crane. He was also the character of Felix Leiter, the CIA agent to James Bond's 007, in two different Bond films. Now, the character of Felix Leiter has appeared in numerous films over the years, and he's he's been white, he's been African-American, he's been a, kind of across the board. He played him in Live and Let Die, in 1973, opposite Roger Moore, Roger Moore's very first film, and then came back in 1989 and played him again uh, in License to Kill, opposite, uh, my mind just went blank, who's the James Bond in that one? Uh, License to Kill, Timothy Dalton? Yes, Timothy Dalton. He came back, and I believe that may be, no, Felix Leiter's been in Casino Royale, so they've had him since. And other films. A lot of different actors have played him. I think Jack Lord even played him in one movie. He did lots of TV work too. He, uh, I think I was looking through his credits, there was a lot of uh, Fantasy Island, a lot of Love Boat guest appearances. So he was pretty prolific uh, on television on into the 1980s. His wife, Helene Delambre, uh, was played by Patricia Owens. Uh, did you know she's my great aunt? Is she really? No. Oh. <laughs> you didn't mention this before the Oh, show. yeah. That seems like something I would have mentioned. <laughs> I, I would think you would have mentioned it, but maybe you were saving it for the shock value. She did lots of TV work. I don't think she did anything other genre work with one exception. She was in an episode of Colonel March of Scotland Yard playing opposite Boris Karloff. Uh, mm-hmm. That's Boris Karloff's kind of forgotten series he did in the 50s where he plays a one-eyed detective of uh, in Scotland Yard is solving crimes and murders over in the UK and she was in an episode of that of course Vincent Price plays the character of Francois de Lambre the brother of Andre and of course he has the eternal hots for Helene but a gentleman he never he acted never, on that never while. acted on it at all Herbert Marshall plays Inspector Shiraz uh, who ends up helping really for the most part the family He's, he was in a variety of films. He was an Alfred Hitchcock's foreign correspondent, 1940s movie called The Unseen, which some people say is an indirect sequel to The Uninvited. I have it. It was an average film. <laughs> I, I don't remember being overly blown away, and I don't really remember anything tying it into The Uninvited. He was also in Gog and Writers to the Stars, so a couple of sci-fi films in the 50s. And last but not least, we have young Charles Herbert as the young Philippe de Lambre, uh, who was in a couple of other, lots of TV work. I think he's recently passed a few years ago, but he was in uh, Colossus of New York and the bigger film being 13 Ghosts. Um, so he has a, a few films with him. I know he was a frequent guest of uh, Monster Bash. Yeah, I hear lots of fond memories and stories of him. Indeed. So uh, I think a really good cast. You mentioned the screenplay by James Clavell. Uh, he didn't do a lot of genre work outside of a he he did a a couple of episodes of the series Men in Men into Space. Mm. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. It uh, it, it actually plays on comedy yeah, TV. On, I've been meaning to catch week. try it's that. 1950s low budget sci fi TV. I mean, you've got to be in the mood for it. It's not great television, but it's it's fun. Is it a continuing story or are they standalone episodes? I think they're standalone for the most part, but don't quote me on that because I have I don't see it week in and week out. I haven't been lost, but I don't know if it's like, you know, was it uh, Tom Corbett and some of those others 
Rocky Jones, where they were kind of serialized a little bit. And the film was directed by uh, Kurt Newman, who uh, did a wide variety of stuff. Here's an obscure fact. He, he One of his early films was My Pal the King, which was a Tom Mix Western featuring a very young Mickey Rooney. Hmm. Uh, it's a movie made in 1932. So this is about, gosh, maybe six years, seven years before the Andy Hardy movies. Hmm. I actually saw this movie at the Tom Mix Museum down in Dewey, Oklahoma, several years ago when my parents lived down there. My uh, my dad and I went to the Tom Mix Museum, and they would play movies in this little movie theater, and they fired up uh, My Pal the King. Hmm. And uh, it's fun early 30s pseudo-Western Tom Mix, and I actually have a copy of the film, so uh, it is kind of a hard film to find. Secret of the Blue Room, which was a universal thriller. Uh, He did several Tarzan films, as well as a few sci-fi films, Rocket Ship XM, Kronos. He actually died. He did, there's, I think, three more films after this one that he was credited for, uh, he died in 1958 at the age of 50. I think he, if I remember correctly, he died a month after the premiere and a week before the wide release. So he never got a chance to see the success that The Fly was. Now, I know there's some some rumors that he was asked to come back and direct Return of the Fly, but then he passed away. But then it seems like more sources are saying that he was never asked to come back, that he he passed before the production really started uh, kicking into gear for Return of the Fly. They were already moving forward with a cheaper production and were moving forward with a different director before he passed. So I don't <laughs> think his death prevented him from directing the film. I don't think he was ever planned to be the director of Return hmm. of the Fly. Do you know anything about the, the story that this came from? I do not. It was published in Playboy, right? It was yes. a short story. Short story. Yeah. I can't even remember the guy's name. I can't believe I didn't. George uh, Langalon? Okay. Langalon? I only read a synopsis of it, and it sounds very, very close to the movie, uh, story-wise. But I'd like to track that down and read it sometime. Probably online somewhere, I would think. Uh, You know, a couple other little trivia notes about this one. Apparently, Michael Rennie was offered the lead role, but declined because he would have had limited facial screen time. He didn't want to be under the mask. (laughs) Um, Michael Rennie, this would have been four years after he did The Day the Earth Stood Still. But I'm trying to think, you know, really what else he was doing around this time. And he wasn't doing a lot. I mean, Michael Rennie is a very unique actor with a very specific voice, a specific facial structure. Certainly by the 1960s was, was choosing certainly lesser films. Uh, was it Cyborg 2087? He was on, I think one of his more memorable roles towards the end of his life was in uh, Lost in Space, where he played the Keeper in the only two-part episode of uh, Lost in Space. I don't think he would have been the right lead for, for this movie. It would have changed. I think his presence would have clashed with Vincent Price's, I think. I don't know if the, the two of them would have blended as well on screen. Also, the it's a familiar character type in all three of these movies that this lead scientist, I mean, they're handsome guys. And they're, I mean, the name Delambre, I mean, there's a, a, hint, of, a hint of 
royalty or wealth or something that just to me goes with that and the like I say the three characters sort of have a, a type and I don't see him fitting into that type. I could see him I could see him possibly playing the role of Francois. Yes. But not playing on right. right now. Right. Patricia Owens had a real fear of insects and supposedly never saw the the mask until it was revealed while the cameras are rolling. That was Kurt Newman's way of trying to get a very genuine reaction. So supposedly, the screen that's on screen was actually mm. very legit. She was legitimately shocked when she saw the uh, the mask. So whether or not that's Hollywood legend or not, I don't know, but it's a fun story. And the only other little thing I had was the fact that David Hedison actually did his own special effects. He actually wore the mask which is something that was not the case in Return of the Fly. The uh, the lead actor, Halsey, that's his first name, Brett. And, uh, Brett Halsey, there was a stunt actor who did all of the mask work. But David Hedison did his own in The Fly. He didn't do his own, though, when his head was put under the hydraulic press, did he? Well, <laughs> I was going to try to come back with a witty response, but I couldn't yeah, without laughing. No, I was going to say, it would have been perfect if he had never done any of the movies after this. Yeah. Like, well, you know, we never did see him again. Was he the one you said died soon after the fly? Yes, no. yes. Uh, a couple things I just want to add. Patricia Owens, I was going to make a joke about this, probably why they did the movie in color, but she had a, a vibrant head of red hair. She did, yeah. And that looked very striking on, on screen in the color, certainly played that up. The other thing I just, I kind of wanted to place Vincent Price in terms of his career at this point. This was still before he was really what I think what we would come to think of him as horror. He had done House of Wax in 53 and The Mad Magician, which I don't know if it's really strictly horror, but it was after The Fly he did House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, The Bat, those were all in 59. And then one year after that was started with The Corman. I think, don't most people say, or do most people think House on Haunted Hill was really his start. I, I think that was the start of, of the cycle. I mean, he had a few others, obviously. I mean, you could go back to Tower of London in 39, Shock in 46, you know, House of Wax. But the thing 59 is, is when really he, he his career shifted to being primarily right. horror or thrillers with other appearances kind of sporadic, whereas it was the opposite. Whereas The Fly was kind of, I think, kind of just the just before the transition. Yeah, in those previous years, it was, yes, he had made those movies. He just had made so many other types of movies as well during that time. And I think if you look at the roles, too, I mean, here, he really wasn't playing the, the scientist. He wasn't playing the monster. He wasn't playing the bad guy. He was playing, really, a version of what he was well known for at that time, which was kind of a suave character. And it, as you look at the movies he did in 59, he was kind of making the transition to to being more of the scientist or more of the villain-esque kind of character that he could pull off. And then by the time the 60s rolled around, I mean, he just kind of continued to, to move towards more horrific roles and really mastering the horror comedy, which um, is not easy to pull off and he pulls off by just essentially being himself. I, I think one of the extras, this, I watched the, uh, the fly collection, all three movies in a nice box set that came out, gosh, 11 years ago. Now had a nice extra disc of, of extra stuff. And one of them was the biography 
that was the old A&E biography was on there, and I, we watched that, and, and it was, first off, I missed that show. That show was so cool back in the 90s, and uh, I know they did an updated version, but it just wasn't the same. Those biographies are extras that pop up on sets from time to time, and they give you so much information about the actors and actresses in the movies that they did. But it was interesting to to watch you know the progression of his career and just the pure love that he had for these films. These weren't obligations for him. He continued making movies well past when he had the need financially, much like Karloff, who just loved acting and loved these films. And in a total tangent, I, I knew when I was watching biography, it's like, okay, this has to have been a while because his daughter, Victoria, was on there looking uh, very young and vibrant and not saying she isn't now, but it was just it reminded me how long ago the, the biography series was. But in that special, did you watch that? I did not. Okay. Gosh, the, the love she had for her father and her father's movies just comes across in every, and she's in quite a few little interview segments. You can just see the, the on her facial expression, the love she had for her father and, and her father's films and, the admiration that she had, which I think is why she wrote the book and, and continues to, to go around speaking uh, about him. She'll be at this year's Monster Bash. Um, you know, I think that uh, I really want to get the book that she did. Do you have that book by chance? Her the autobi- or biography of her father? Yeah. Yes, I do. Is, is, have you read it? Is it? I have read most of it. Yeah. Is it is it a good book? Yes. Is it? yes okay. Definitely. Sometimes, you know, the when the, the children or grandchildren write you can kind of tell that if it's being, I don't know, sometimes it just comes across, you can tell someone else wrote this and they just slapped this. Right. I really do believe this is something that she probably wrote. And I think the fact that she's continuing to go around and I get a different feel from her and the admiration that she has for her father, as opposed to some of the others. Like I think Sarah Karloff has an admiration for her father and respect for what, for what he did. I don't necessarily get the same feel from like the Lugosi or the Cheney family. I think sometimes there's better feelings and, and sometimes I just get the feel like maybe they're trying to cash in on, on the, the Lugosi or Cheney name. I just don't get that feel with her. I could be wrong, but that's just a general feel that I get. And, and uh, if so, if you, if you have a chance to, to, to have the flight collection and I don't even know if it's still available in print, We'll try to find that out before we finish wrapping up the recording, but it's well worth watching the extras. There's also a ton of trailers, not necessarily related to The Fly. They, they put like, I don't know, 20 monster trailers on there. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, it's fun to just press play and just go through all these these trailers that really have nothing to do with The Fly, but it were probably released by the same studio. And so it was just fun. And some titles I'd never even heard of, you know, I had to write down, and you know me... I'm not going to buy any movies this year. But <laughs> yeah, I just uh, fun extras, I think. And I don't get a chance to do that with all films, but I think uh, th- it's something with this one was a lot of fun. And, and certainly the the set, at least when I got it, was not that expensive. So hopefully it's still available. I believe The Fly is on... Is it, was it released on Blu-ray? I think so. I have no evidence of that, though. And one last thing I'll add about Price is I think people myself included, think of him in his horror movies as being the bad guy, but in, don't know the ratio, but he just as often to me was the good guy in these horror movies. So if you think of like Vincent Price the Fly, I bet people think 
oh, he's you know the monster. He's not. I think he's more good than bad when you really start <laughs> counting him up. I mean, even in some of the Corman movies, I, I think you know, obviously, when he does something like you know the Witchfinder General, you know, obviously he makes up for you know his lack of evilness in other films by some of those films in the late sixties. And I think even he said he didn't necessarily care to play those kind of roles. He he loved having a lot more fun with uh, with the films, and and so and I think that's you get the gist, of course, when he you know is maybe struggling in a role sometimes, whereas other films that he's clearly like the Fives movies, he just he's having fun with those, um, and it coming obviously that coming in the early seventies towards the end of his horror career. Uh, and is one of the films that he's perhaps most remembered for. The Fly is available on Blu-ray right now on Amazon for $7.65. You know what's interesting, though? Look at the cover of that. It's a black and white cover. Well, and I would think, you know, if they've gotten... Uh, I mean, it looked great on, on DVD, so if they've done any type of good upgrade, it's probably a really great Blu-ray to have in your collection. Oh, I didn't even see the set you've got. Do you see it uh, It looks like it is still available, actually. It's an Amazon choice, and it's available right now for less than $20. Wow. That's a bargain, folks. Uh, $20 for this set. You get three great copies of the films, uh, a nice disc of extras. There's some other things on there, too, besides the biography episode and stuff. I wonder how the fly, the one we're talking about, looks on Blu-ray. And, of course, I watched your DVD after I had digitized it, and... I just wonder, the color was a little wonky, you know what I mean? I mean, because it's... I actually noticed the same thing in, in some scenes, but I was watching it on a, not my Blu-ray player. I uh, watched it while we were on uh, our honeymoon, actually. Uh, <laughs> which Not ours, but no, yours no, and Carla. Yes, yes, Carla and I, uh, who have, we've gotten married. I guess, yeah, we got married. Oh, old business, the, maybe? Old, old business, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Carla and I got married on the 14th of April. Went on a honeymoon a couple of weeks later to to show you that how I hit the jackpot. <laughs> um, she wanted to watch the Fly movies late at night, you know, on our on our romantic honeymoon. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, we had a, a rainy day where we stayed in a little Hobbit cave and and watched uh, watched Return of the Fly. And we watched all the extras. We we stayed inside all day. It was raining all day. We went out for a German dinner. But beyond that, we just kind of hibernated, and it was uh, kind of fun just sitting in on a rainy day watching these fly movies. So. And, and let's clarify, when you say Hobbit Cave, it's literally a Hobbit Cave. That's not just your nickname for your wedding bed, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We stayed at a really cool place in Eureka Springs. If you're in the area and, and you're interested, it's called the uh, Eureka Springs Treehouses. And I, I will, you know, I've given them a five-star rating on TripAdvisor. Absolutely fun place to stay. Very secluded. It's a gated a series of cabins. You can get tree houses. You can get Harry Potter Village, or you can get these Hobbit caves. Literally, you're you're walking down steps into an underground little cave-like, you know, honeymoon or whatever getaway. And you have a little patio that looks out towards the back. That's literally looking out at trees and a, kind of a cavernous area. So it's very nice and secluded. It's a fun, bizarre little town, Eureka Springs. Again, going on a tangent here. A bizarre little town that's built kind of into the side of this mountain, full of of Victorian homes uh, that are literally built in the side of this mountain. They don't have 
a front yard. They're, you walk out their steps of their front door, two or three steps are in the street, and their backyard is nothing because their house is built on stilts. Bizarre, but beautiful, and we had a good, we had a great time. So, is that uh, the town that has the downtown that's kind of up on a hill on the yes. street? Okay, I th- I've been there. I just, yeah, it's very kind of a hard to navigate downtown area. I mean, they encourage people to take the trolley in, and because yeah, parking is is once you get into the heart of downtown is is a bit tricky. Had a fun experience, and it was uh, yeah, a nice rainy day in in the hills of Arkansas, watching Return of the Fly and, and some fly extras. So I, this is probably the biggest tangent we've taken. <laughs> but in any case, I noticed that the image was uh, at times it seemed a little off, and I don't know if it's just because it's a 2007 DVD. I didn't know if it was the TV. I didn't know if it was the you know the Blu-ray player. If you noticed it too, it may be some imperfections in the original production. I tell you though, these Blu-rays, this high definition is spoiling you because I I feel like these days I watch more movies on Blu-ray because they're new and I buy them and I watch them. But when I pull out a DVD and go back, almost anything, it just isn't as sharp and clear. And I really, if, like I say, I've been spoiled. I prefer the Blu-ray. Well, I, you know, we... We watched the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies, and we watched the Hobbit first. We were doing it chronologically, and the Hobbit movies I had on Blu-ray. I did not have Lord of the Rings on Blu-ray. I had it on DVD because I had this really nice box set that looked like, you know, books in a library. And it yes, it, I noticed the definite downgrade, and it was like we started watching it. We got through the first one, I thought, wow, this would have been much better on Blu-ray. But at that point, I didn't want to go out and upgrade, and so we just watched it. But I, I said, you know, these will be films because we're both big fans. We'll probably revisit them again in the next two to three years. I'll have to upgrade my my Lord of the Rings to, to Blu-ray because there's just some films that look better. With the classic films, if they take the time to, you know, remaster a print, then I think that it's worth upgrading. They don't always do that. I don't know. If, if anyone out there has the fly on Blu-ray, uh, it'd be interesting. I know there's a site that, that has, what's it called, DVD? Beaver? Beaver, yeah, that does the comparison. I don't know if they've done that. It'd be interesting. Mm. That's a good site to go to, actually. I, I go to that if I ever want to upgrade because I want to see a comparison. It's helped me decide yay or nay several times. And I wonder if the fly is on there because I'd be curious to see if the upgrade is truly uh, worth the, you know buying the Blu-ray or if you know uh, it's better off just keeping the DVD and waiting for a future better upgrade. Uh, I don't know. Well, should we wrap it up since we've gone on some tangents? Is there anything else we want to say about the fly? I think we've said about all we can say. It's it's a great film, and and I think a uh, good start to our fly trilogy. And uh, let's dive into. Return of the Fly. Yeah, let's first, though, hear what uh, someone else had to think of the fly, and uh, we'll play Steve Turek's comments here, and uh, then be back with Return of the Fly. Hi, guys. This is Steve Turek calling back. I just got done watching The Fly from 1958, and um, I tell you, it was even better than I remembered. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie, so long that I forgot that it was in color. I didn't know it was in color because back when I'd seen it before, it was always back in the days when all I had was a black and white TV in my bedroom and was watching it. So when I stuck the disc in and I watched it, it's like, 
it's in color. And I had to check to make sure it wasn't a colorized version. I was like, oh, no, it came out in color to begin with. And I was like, I was like, wow, that's great. It was a, it was a, it was a, I was pleasantly surprised. As for the movie, it was an, I mean, what can you say? It's an excellent movie. I mean, really, it's Patricia Owens' movie all the way through with Vincent Price and David Hedison and Herbert Marshall rounding out the cast and supporting her. But she just does an amazing job of playing this, this woman who goes through so much different emotion of shock, um, horror, and love that she had for has had and has for her husband as she goes through this film. And it's just, like I said, an excellent film, a very enjoyable. And really, it's just to show you, you don't need a lot of gore and depth in order to have a very good monster movie horror film. I mean, only one person dies in it and that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's just a really good movie. And I'm looking forward to moving on to the sequel, which I remember with have fond memories of also. So, talk to you guys later after I watch the second one. Hang in there. Bye. Listen. Do you hear? It's coming back. Turning the screen into a buzzing, crawling, creeping nightmare of terror. This is the son of the original fly, daring to explore the forbidden science of transmigration that brought horrible death to his father. You look as if you've just seen a ghost, old man. It was the fly. Fear that will fasten its choking grip on you as his weird experiments spawn the twisted monstrosities of a living hell. The rat man whose hands and feet are changed to paws. The living corpse who rose from his coffin. And the return of the fly, seeking revenge with a thousand eyes. Smashing anything that stands in his way. Suppose he does come here. What if Philippe does not have the mind of a human, but the murderous brain of the fly? Then he will have to be destroyed. Several years later, Philippe Delambre is a grown man and continues the experiments that his father, André, began in the fly. With resources depleted, he blackmails his uncle Francois to provide financial assistance. There's a villain lurking, though, as an industrial spy threatens to derail Philippe's plans and create for him a gruesome fate similar to his father's. I feel like we've already talked a little bit about Return of the Fly as we were kind of comparing some of the differences. Overall, I mean, there's no doubt this is definitely a lower budget, cheaper production, much more familiar to movies of this type of the time and even before that. Not a prestige production at all. But I think it's solid. I I really don't. I don't dislike this movie at all. How do you feel? I think it is a really good sequel. I like the fact that Vincent Price is back, although it doesn't look like he's aged nearly as much as the character of Philippe did. But uh, I like the fact that they even reused some of the same sets, which is why they made this film so quickly after the first, because they still had the standing sets. And that enhanced the movie, you know, quite a bit. 
and I think, you know, I wish this would have been made in color. Uh, it doesn't necessarily detract from it that it's in black and white, but I wish they would have spent the extra money to make it in color because I think that it would probably get a little bit more respect than it, it does. It does kind of... Everyone talks about The Fly, but you don't hear as many people talking about Return of the Fly. And although I didn't enjoy it as much, I did enjoy it. And I think they're, they're two great films to see back-to-back because they're definitely solidly connected. Yeah, I love when a sequel you know is so close. There's some discrepancies. I mean... I, I noticed in the first one he makes a point to throw all his notes into a barrel and set them on fire, but yet there were enough notes for his son to pick up the experiments. Well, but that's easily explainable. Maybe he had a library upstairs or something. I think one of the more interesting ones is that in the first movie, his his laboratory was in the basement of the house, yet here it seemed to imply that it wasn't at the house, but that it was... At the foundry. At the foundry. Yeah. Uh, because the guard shows up and I'm like, well, he wasn't at the house. He was at the foundry. Huh? Minor, but it definitely stood out. Uh, it's like, what is he doing here? Because yeah, I guess he's guarding the house, but then they make reference to, you're right. I noticed that, but it didn't connect with me. But now that you say that, you're right. Huh? They did a good job of, of making reference to Inspector Shiraz, who is not in this film, but that, there are other inspectors that worked with him, although we didn't see them in the first film. It kind of tries to say, well, we're not going to have Herbert Marshall back in this film because they decided they didn't need anybody else but Vincent Price. So rather than recast Inspector Shiraz, they simply have him off screen and have another inspector in his place. I thought it was kind of odd that the an inspector character was so key to all three stories, whether, I mean... In the third one, it was actually the inspector from the first one. Yes, he's old and in his deathbed, but there's an inspector in every movie. They refer to the inspectors that worked previously on the case. And I guess I guess that's because that's really the only evidence they have that any of this has happened, is that the inspectors have witnessed it. They've heard the firsthand stories, and they can kind of make the claims valid that, yes, they did indeed happen. But it just seemed an odd choice, and it, it makes all three have a very similar formula. It gave, in the first film, it gave you know Vincent Price and, and the inspector the connection that they had in trying to solve the mystery. It made sense in the first film. I guess having the inspector in this one or the reference just seemed as it just... It seemed like a way to connect it to the first film. It was... It made sense in the first one to me a lot more than it did have. Yeah, but they didn't need it in this because they had Vincent Price and they had the son. I mean, they didn't really need another connection to the first no, film. No, and there's there are some odd things in, in this film because at the very beginning, you know, approximately 15 years has passed, give or take. Philippe is now older and we're starting off at the funeral. Helene has passed away. Uh, it's implied that, you know, she had a very rough time that, you know, she still struggled with everything that she experienced, you know, as I think anyone else would as well. There's the, the newspaper guy at the beginning of the, of the film there at the, at the funeral. Yes. Makes reference to, it seems to imply that there's going to be this newspaper hound that's going to be hounding them throughout the movie. And then there's no other reference, but they make a point of like stopping the camera on him at one point And, it just seemed incredibly odd. It's like you put all this effort into introducing this character 
and keeping the camera on him, and then you never mention him again hmm. at all in the film. That didn't make sense right. to me. I don't know if that was an under, like just a plot point that they just decided, oh, never mind, we're going to forget about it. I mean, it's certainly something, again, that's, that we'll talk about in Curse of the Fly. They do the same thing in that movie. There's some plot points that don't make a lot of sense and don't really, nothing comes of it. And that certainly didn't come of it in this one here. Uh, I, I don't understand the, the reason for that. Uh, why don't we talk about the cast? Sure. Vincent Price is back as Francois. As I said, he does not look much older. A hint of gray on the side, which isn't always the same. And there are some scenes he doesn't have the same hint of gray. We have Brett Palsy playing the character of Philippe, now older and wanting to kind of follow in his father's footsteps. Not a lot of work that Brett did. He did lots of TV work. Yeah, and the, what's interesting about his TV work is... He's been in like, say, 12 episodes of Fantasy Island, 14 episodes of Love Boat. And I thought, oh, what continuing character was he? I don't remember. And you look at the credits and he, he was one of those character actors that played yeah. different people every played time he was people. on. Yeah, yeah. And, and you forget that, I guess Fantasy Island was on the air for like, I think, six or seven seasons. Love Boat, I think, was on for close to 10, I think. Uh, maybe Maybe not that many, but I know that... When you've got, you know, how many characters in an average episode? I mean, there's usually three stories, I think, going on, maybe more. Over a period of time, yeah, you're going to have some of those character actors that they just, they they made their money by, well, this is your season, you know, this is your role this season on Love Boat, and it's probably no different than what he played the two previous times, but let's throw a different name on it. Uh, yeah, that's a, he did a lot of that kind of stuff in his career. Star Trek reference coming in. David Frankham played the role of Ronald Holmes, a.k.a. Mr. Hines, the villain of the piece, per se. He played the character of Larry Marvick in the 1968 episode of Star Trek called Is There in Truth No Beauty? Uh, he plays the designer of the uh, the engines for the Enterprise who ends up going mad when he sees the, the Medusa and uh, takes the Enterprise to the edge of the galaxy or something. He was also in a couple of other Vincent Price films, Tales of Terror and Master of the World. I just want to say, while you mention him, that is something that's out of the formula for any of the movies, is his character as this sort of spy that's assisting, but is really trying to collect information to sell it and, and yeah, make a buck. So yeah, that, that is unique. That's not anything anywhere near that in the other two movies. And it actually, I mean, at first I thought this seems like, you know, is it does it really fit in? But actually it's a big part of the movie. It, it actually kind of helps certain things develop. And actually, he plays a part in one of the most horrific moments, I think, of any of the movies. I know the, the one you're talking yes, about. Yes, the, the merge of, of the, the, the rabbit, right? It was a, a guinea pig? Guinea pig, yeah. There's or a rabbit. No, it was a guinea pig. He, he merged the... Oh, it was, a, it was a police, was it police or, yeah, because it was the detective who was following him around. Uh, yeah, and I, talk about a special effect, those hands under that guinea pig, that is a guinea prime, pig. excellent I, special I will effects. say, that was creepy, that, that was creepy, yeah, that they actually did really well. But yeah, doesn't he just stomp on it or something? He does, oh. he just stomps on the guinea pig and then the little hands are moving on the side, I'm like, good lord. And that leaves quite a stain. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's it. Actually, you can't get out. It's, it's there, and that kind of gives him, a, gives him away not too many scenes later. 
of course, he is working with another bad guy, Max Bartold, I think. Uh, Max, played by Dan Seymour, who, uh, Batman fans, I'm throwing a Batman reference. He plays the Maharaja in the uh, Batman episodes, uh, The Joker, Trumps and Ace, and Batman Sets the Pace. Plays the Maharaja opposite uh, Cesar Romero's Joker. Hmm. Uh, and the uh, love interest of sorts in this film, Cecile, played by Danielle Demetz. Uh, this, I believe, was actually her debut. Hmm. Um, she did lots of TV work and a few other genre films, Valley of the Dragons and The Magic Sword. I've seen both of those. Valley of the Dragons, forgettable. Magic Sword, kind of a fun film, hmm. kind of a fantasy film, low budget. Uh, I think Gary Lockwood is in that one, if I remember correctly, and I hmm. believe Basil Rathbone. Oh, wow. Screenplay and directed by Edward Burns. Edward Burns did lots of work, actually. He, well, he directed Valley of the Dragons, so that may be how Danielle got her job in that film from some, you know, knowing who she was. He did lots of the early Three Stooges shorts. Oh, I I saw there. I, I, that was my note. He did a lot of shorts out of his hundred. I, I didn't realize name. they were. I recognized his name, and, and it's like, yeah, the name sounds familiar. Yeah, sure enough, he directed a hmm. lot of them, and then came back at the end of his career to direct the Three Stooges Meet Hercules and Three Stooges in Orbit, as well as the very last thing he did, he directed all of the live action segments for all fifty nine episodes of the new Three Stooges television show, which was a mixture of live action and cartoons. And a few other films he did, uh, The Bowery Boys Meet the Monsters, which will be played in Monster Bash, as well as The Queen of Outer Space with Zsa Zsa Gabor. I don't know if that's a high point of his career, but nonetheless, you and I have both seen this on the big screen. Right. A, a question. So in IMDb, when you look up, you can, of course, go to the whole resume, but there's usually four three or four movies at the top that uh-huh. like, you would most recognize this yeah. person. World Without End was one. That's yeah. on TCM a lot. Have you seen that? A long time ago. I wonder uh, how that is. I remember it being okay. It wasn't something that, oh my gosh, this is a day the earth stood still. I must watch this every year. It was kind of like, yeah, I've seen it. You know, I actually, I think I may have it, maybe, in my collection. Maybe not. If that says anything. There's, yeah. If it's a movie that I really like... It's going to be in my collection. If it's a movie that I was like, eh, then it's not. Valley of the Dragons is not. So Magic Sword, actually, I I did like. It kind of got goofy at times. That's, a, I believe, a public domain movie. You can find that pretty easy out there. So a little bit of trivia notes on this one. Uh, The movie was rushed into production so they could take advantage of the standing sets. Uh, They decided to slash the budget. They felt like all they needed was Vincent Price, which may very well have been the case. He does have an enhanced role in this film uh, and does play a bit more of the scientist role in this movie, a bit more of a traditional Vincent Price role for what he was going to be shifting to. Now, here's a, here's something that uh, it was double billed with The Alligator People starring Lon Chaney Jr. Have you seen that movie? I have. Not a bad film. Mm-hmm. Now, here's something that, that popped up in the trivia and I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me. Apparently, the the walking stick that Ronald Holmes has in one scene apparently resembles Larry Talbot's cane from The Wolfman. According to this, it says, The silver head of the stick has been painted white. The pentagram is obliterated, but the wolf's head is evident. 
That makes no sense to me because that would have been a universal. Because this wasn't universal, was it? Or was it? No, no, no. So that'd be a universal prop. A prop is not going to change hands from one studio to the other because I've been in the universal prop warehouse. And once a prop is done, unless it goes out onto the market, it stays there. What and, character and, had a cane? Who was it? It was in. It was the the Ronald Holmes when he was in uh, Max's. There was. I think that's the scene where he was in like Max's office, and he was toying around with a cane. Hmm. Uh, I remember that. I. I there's no I don't to my mind is like there's be no way that that would be the same cane that would be used in the Wolfman that would be weird yeah might resemble it right but it the fact that that can't be his cane it doesn't make sense to me anyway I thought I'd mention that this movie of course takes place 15 years later uh, I think that there are some some good things as we talked about there's some inconsistencies not nearly as much as we would get with Curse of the Fly but I think they did a really good job of of keeping everything feeling the same and obviously using the the standing set was a big plus. And I think even they recognized let's take this opportunity and use this set because it's definite connection between the two films. I think we, we talked about this earlier. The fly head is different. And I don't know why it would be. Clearly they would have had the same head unless for some reason it got destroyed. Um, so why they would have had to go with a bigger head i just had a thought and i don't want to stop derail things now but let's definitely do it on old business i wonder who makeup artists were between the two movies i mean it could be someone else uh that would be might be a clue to why they're different i guess maybe the fly head was had more screen time in return of the fly and so maybe they felt it needed to be bigger to be more horrific I don't know. I mean, to me, it was an odd choice to have different, unless they wanted to try to differentiate the flies. <laughs> maybe true. I mean, yeah, maybe, maybe they one re- was a horse fly, one was a house fly. I don't know. I well, mean, and maybe when they disintegrated and reintegrated, that different molecules went here and there, and it just was a different combination. Yeah, yeah, and they clearly went with a different miniature fly effect. We were talking about that earlier too, and I think. Again, maybe that's just to try to come up with something rather than do the same thing they did in the 58 movie. Let's, we got a lesser budget, so let's do something different. And maybe it also kind of makes it stand out. It had more screen time as well. It pops up several times. The sound, I think, was chilling. Not as much as the first movie for me. But then he was at he was calling for for uh, for Cecile, wasn't he? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like he's he's asking for Cecile. Yes, he says Cecile, help me. Yeah, which is kind of chilling. I don't know. It didn't have the same effect for me as as the uh, as as the Fly in Fifty Eight. But I thought it was done well, considering what we would get in, in Curse of the Fly. You know, I think it stands out. Well, here's an interesting thing that'll just kind of tell you the difference in the Fly. One of the it's a great shot, and they don't overuse it. I think they only use it once, but you get a point-of-view shot of the fly looking, and, of course, there's 16 or whatever little squares because you're looking through a fly's eye. They don't bother to do that, and there's a point-of-view shot, but it's just a singular... That's true, yeah. yeah. Another difference, and I can't imagine that would have been a hard special effect to do. Again, that may have been just a directorial choice. Yeah. I don't know if, that, if it was rushed into production maybe it was rush completed as well 
That's possible. I, I just love that fly, though. I it's I don't know. It's I, I just love that mask and that. I think it's good. I, I mean, I just don't think it's as good as the first yeah, one. Right, so, right. But uh, you know what? We're usually so in sync. Right. Well, and it's not like this is a throwdown no. fist fight over it. I mean. No, because I think we both like both of yes, yes. them. Yes, I think that you couldn't go wrong in a double feature watching both of these movies in an afternoon. They're fun. They're easy to watch. And, and again, there's a lot of strong connections between the two films. They this film. one runs, I believe, about 15 minutes shorter. It does clip along faster. It's it's a... I mean, if, if it's the fly, a more of a B film, yeah. So if if the fly was a prestige picture, this is you know the poor man's version of that. It's more exploitative for sure. I mean, first fly, I don't think ever would have had someone stomping on a guinea pig with human hands. No. You know, it's they're they're very different, but no. yet I I do like how they. It's a more traditional 1950s B horror sci-fi film. Yeah. yeah. Anything else to say about it? Well, you know, I thought before we uh, well, why don't we. We have some comments, right? Yep. And then when we come back, I thought, let's, before we dive into Curse of the Fly, let's talk about some of the weird music and movies from 58, 59, and 65 as we segue now six years later for the next film. Oh, that'll be fun. So here's uh, someone else's comment, Steve Turek, on Return of the Fly. Hello, gentlemen. Like I told you, I'd call you back again. This is Steve Turek. I just got done watching Return of the Fly. And I enjoyed that one. That's not as good as The Fly, but it's still very good. I enjoyed it. It's one of the few monster movies with a happy ending. So I guess we can always say that's a good thing. Um, it was interesting to see how they um, changed some things from the year before, like where the laboratory was, some of the journals survived, and all that stuff. But, I mean, I really didn't care. I mean, I noticed it, but... I think people that were seen in a year later probably wouldn't have noticed such things at all. Um, it was great that Vincent Price was able to be in both of them. And, of course, in both roles, he's not the bad guy, which is always a, a pleasant change. And um, it, was really, it was really well acted, well done. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, like I said, I was happy to see that the good guy didn't die. And it was a happy ending at all. So tomorrow I'm going to be watching the final one, Curse of the Fly, which I've never seen before. I heard it's totally different than the other two, so I'm looking forward to that, and I'll give you guys a call back tomorrow. All right, again, keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Bye. The terror shock that can't be stopped. You're not God. You're not even human. You murdered those men, and you made me a murderer, too. Weird experiments of accursed scientists turn human beings into living, hybrid hell monsters. Now you hold hands with the devil. Now you run. Run for your life from the terror, the torment, and torture inflicted by Satan's ambassador of evil. next victim could be you, or you, or you, caught forever by the curse of the fly. Patricia Stanley escapes from a mental hospital and soon finds herself in love with Andre Delambre's grandson, Martin. When he takes her home to meet his family, the experiments they're conducting are disrupted. More advanced than the experiments of his ancestors, Martin, 
his brother Albert, and his father Henri have succeeded in transporting their subjects from Quebec to London, but not without consequence. Everyone has secrets, some literally hiding behind the doors of the gloomy estate. Okay, so one thing that we do is like to take a look at the year, uh, what was happening in that year. This time around, I just want to take a look at the the music and the movies and just a little snippet of the TV. And the TV is not going to come as a big surprise, so why don't we start there? Gunsmoke, right? Gunsmoke, <laughs> yes. 58 and 59, Gunsmoke was the number one show. Now, in 65, Gunsmoke was still on, but Bonanza was the number mm. one show. However, in 1965... The number five and number ten show of the year was Batman. Yes. Because Batman was playing two nights a week. And so one night, oh. <laughs> I think it was, I think part one was the number five show, part two was the number ten show. But in either case, <laughs> Batman got on twice because it was broadcast twice a week, which I think was kind of cool. Yeah. Music. There was a lot of strange music being made at this time. In 1958, we had Witch Doctor by David Seville. We had Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley. And Yakety Yak by the Coasters. Now, there was other songs, obviously. There was some uh, Dean Martin, I think, in 58 or 59. But these kind of stood out as oddities. These were top songs or just songs that came out? These were actually top songs. These were, I was looking at the top songs of the year. These made the top 10, 15 of the year. 1959, actually the number one song, according to Billboard of 1959, was The Battle of New Orleans by Johnny Horton. Charlie Brown by The Coasters was another top song. And for fun and reference, not a crazy tune, but uh, certainly meaningful for us here, Kansas City by Wilbert Harrison was one of the top songs that year. Now, six years later, 1965, things were changing. Uh, Musically, we still had a couple of goofy tunes, Wooly Bully, by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, uh, What's New Pussycat by Tom Jones, but we also were getting some solid rock and roll. We had the Rolling Stones and Satisfaction. Things were beginning to change. Movie-wise, 1958, we had a couple of solid entries from Hammer, Horror of Dracula and Revenge of Frankenstein. We had The Blob, which uh, is coming up on Sven the second Saturday of May. Uh, we had Frankenstein 1970 with Boris Karloff. We had How to Make a Monster, which we saw on the big screen. And have talked about. Yes. Uh, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And a little ditty called The Robot versus the Aztec Mummy. In 1959, you've already mentioned, there was a lot of Vincent Price. Haunt, House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, The Bat. We had Caltiki. We had The Monster of Piedras Blancas. We had The Manster... And we had a film which is kind of a a precursor of things to come. Terror is a Man, which is one of the pseudo versions of the Dr. Moreau storyline, which we'll be doing in a couple months here on the show. Not Terror is a Man, but the Dr. Moreau movies. And in 1965, by this point, we have 007 and one of the biggest movies, Thunderball, with Sean Connery. We had uh, Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires. We had Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, right, in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, Mm -hmm. and The Skull. We had, uh, from Hammer, we had The Nanny. We had Monster-A-Go-Go, Topical. We had Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Roman Polanski just getting kicked out of the Academy. The Repulsion is one of his more memorable films. And 
Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster came out in 1965, uh, showing that we certainly have some great movies and some less than great. And I think that's a perfect segue into talking about Curse of the Fly, the third film, very loosely connected in the Fly trilogy. In many ways, I think about the only thing it has in connection with the first two films is the name Delambre. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about at lunch. This is like the alternative universe version of the Fly, or as you like to say, and if you're a comic book fan, it's the Earth Two version, you know, of of the Fly. There's some similarities and some differences, and I really don't know why they made some of the of the choices to change things up because they weren't necessary. And I just don't understand. It's made by the same studio, so I don't know well, why. Well, you know, and I tried to find, I couldn't find much about this, but this is, I think, a, a British production. I mean, a lot of Hammer people are in, well, not a lot, but some Hammer people are involved. It reminded me very much of when we did Donovan's Brain, and we the third movie in that set was The Brain, which was a British version, and it was just a little off-kilter. It was Well, and I really want to question... The now, first off, this movie was was very hard to find on home video for many years. In fact, the 2007 Fly Collection was the first time it had been available on home video, so it had never been released on on VHS. So, if you had a copy beforehand, it was a bootleg, and it wasn't something that gets played a lot. It does pop up sometimes on Turner Classic, or it was on AMC every once in a while, but it's not one of the most popular Fly movies. So it doesn't get played as much. I noticed at the beginning of the print, the logo and music at the beginning was of a different video and sound quality than the rest of the film. Hmm. It felt tacked on. And so I'm wondering if that was on the original print or if, because uh, the rest of the movie looked good. Uh, but if if I just noticed, and I rewatched it this morning, and it, it stands out. It's like visually and, and the audio, it's a definite lesser quality than the rest of the film. It felt like it was tacked on. So I wonder if if when this was released, if it was more of a British production, and now for the home video release, they're, they're kind of tacking on the logo because they own the rights to it. But maybe that had something to do with maybe why they made some of the choices they did in regards to the script. I don't know. Uh, yeah, and that introduction is really weird, too. I mean, it dawns on me. I actually did make a note, pretty piano music, you know, at the beginning. So that wasn't used through the rest of the movie. No. Really, it was a different type of score. The opening was shot in slow motion. It's a the woman that's escaping from the mental institution running away in her underwear. Which is never really... She had a nervous breakdown, supposedly, but I mean, she and she never really seems like she's had a nervous breakdown. She, yeah, she seems well. She comes up with a story about you know why she's running away, but she seemed. Yeah, I kept expecting that to play in more. Like she was gonna. She's eh, this is just weird. So she does disrupt what's going on with the family because mostly because the father. I, I don't know. It's weird. He just because she marries his son and comes into the family, they have to stop experimenting. It's wow. not like she really poses a threat. Well, and I kind of thought that she was going to go maybe bonkers. Exactly, at some point. exactly. Like, but she never does. No, nope. she she sees some pretty odd things and never goes over the edge. No. So this whole idea that she was an escapee 
and then you have, you know, they're looking for her, and then police come, and, and then they're like, well, you need to sign off if you're married to her, you know, you know, so we'll release her. I'm very odd. It made no sense because at no point does she show signs that she's had a nervous breakdown, that she's mentally unstable. Nothing. Nothing like that, really. I wonder if the the woman from the mental institute, doesn't she go to the police? I wonder if that mechanism was used to bring, because we talked about how the inspectors are such a big part. He probably wouldn't have been brought into the story brought, unless yeah. she had gone to report that. But but you could have brought that character in sure. because there is the missing first wife of, of Martin. And because that's mentioned, right? True. Well, he never found her. Well, she just left. They could have spent more time, not done any of this this storyline about you know Patricia being you know unstable, and still had the inspector come investigating the missing you know first wife. It, that whole plot line with her, you know, Patricia didn't didn't need to happen. And, and I think if they would have done maybe spent a little more time, you could have had a more cohesive script and, again, a little more time and effort, and you could have tied this one in much better to the first two films. I really think it originally was not a fly movie at all, I, and they put the name on it to try to cash in or to, to bring it together, but... I, I mean, you know, the the there isn't even added late. Yeah, late. yeah, I would agree. Because would agree. even, I mean, there is no fly creature in this. I mean, they're doing experiments similar, but the results are very different. They're just scarring people, really. They're not really combining. Yeah, it. it I, I could see that theory, though, because, I mean, although they do talk about the teleportation, I mean, that certainly strongly is connected with the first film. Although even it's different enough because in the first two films, it's just like they're transporting across the room. And I'm sure the implications eventually would be larger. But here, all of a sudden, they're, you know, transporting across the ocean, you know. And they don't country. have it perfected. Why they decided to do across the ocean when it's not perfected, <laughs> why not just do from, you know, one city to the next? Because, I, 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 again, there was not really any need to have the Quebec and, and London locations. You could have had two locations in Canada or Quebec and, and New York, for that matter, if you wanted to do. There, there was no need to do the London thing unless, again, the film was made in London but or in the UK, but I, I don't know. Was this the one where when they teleport them, they can just leave them out in space until they decide, okay, now let's bring them back? Or was that Return of the Fly? That was Return of the oh, Fly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never mind. Which was, yeah, we didn't really talk about that. That was kind of a big plot development. And that one was like, oh, we're, not, we're just going to leave him there. You know, because that's, the, that's how the, when, they, when he, he doesn't bring the guinea pig back. Right. But he sends off the detective, essentially. Oh, they're both out there. Out there. Gotcha. And then brings them both back in, yeah. which is why they get merged. Gotcha. So so let's, let's talk about the cast on this one. You've got. Brian Donlevy playing Henri Delambre. Now, he did The Quartermass Experiment. He did uh, Gamera the Invincible. We talked about this over lunch. He, he's an actor that a lot of people seem to not really like in the Quartermass film. I honestly don't remember 
what he did in, in Gamera, the Invincible, which I know is the American name of one of, of the, I can't remember which version it is. It's the American title for one of the original Gamera films. But I, I, I think he probably, would, I don't know, was he an addition? Probably maybe. Like a, Raymond Burr was yeah, in Godzilla? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, because well, not, he certainly wasn't in in the original Gamera film, so I'm, that's odd. I'm, I'm going to have to do some research on that. But Well, I certainly didn't like him in this. I no. just didn't, he, I don't know, I can't. I don't know if he was miscast or if he was Well, supposedly he was hard to get along with. So I know that supposedly, if I remember correctly, he had a drinking problem. So, to me, his performance was very stilted at times. Yeah. Uh, it didn't seem to have a natural flow to it. It just seemed like he was reciting lines. Exactly. And he... Okay, so he's supposedly... His two sons are reluctant to participate, and he's, like, forcing them. But he has no... It's just all one level. He doesn't appear particularly mean or cruel to them, yeah. or it's just a one-note performance. And yeah, I didn't care for him at all. No, no. Uh, so Henri is supposedly the... So he's the... This is where they make some changes again that weren't necessary. He's supposedly Philippe's brother. And they've altered the storyline so that uh, Andre did get you know did get merged into a fly creature, but that Philippe was able to restore him, and so Henri is Philippe's brother, which of course Philippe never had a brother, but now all of a sudden he does, and then of course Henri has two sons himself, Martin and Albert. So Andre is their grandfather. I think you could have easily not change things and just say that Henri was the son of Philippe and that Albert and Martin were the grandsons, or I guess the the great-grandsons of Andre. I think you could have done that. It would have been fine. Yeah, the timeline would have been a little hinky, but no different than Vincent Price getting a few gray hairs while Philippe is now 15 years older. I mean, that happens in movies all the time. It would have made more sense. Changing, you know, Andre's fate didn't make a lot of sense. For, and it didn't really enhance... It wasn't a big plot point, And it just it caused a disconnect between this and the previous two films. And I think supports the fact that this might not have always been... A, a fly film and that it is a low-budget film. Let's throw the fly name on there to try to capitalize on the first two films and throw in a few references. And, and there's some similarities, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some last-minute changes. They should have done a much better job on the script. The script was written by Harry Spaulding, who... His movies, if you look at some of his genre films, they're not A-list. Uh, no, he did a lot of horror and sci-fi, but like you said, not A-list. Witchcraft, Earth Dies Screaming, Day Mars Invaded Earth, Watcher in the Woods, which is an interesting Betty Davis Disney flick from circa 1980, which, as I recall, had a lot of production issues. I don't know. I, I just think that they could have done better on the script. And since you mentioned witchcraft, a lot of these people were involved in witchcraft. Uh, Don Sharp directed it. Not sure which actress or even a couple of the actors were also in witchcraft. 
And if I recall, this was produced by, uh, I don't know if his first name is Robert, but Lippert, who also, I believe, is British. That's why I keep thinking this is a British production. Yeah. But I believe I read that this was a part, a four-picture deal, and Witchcraft was one of them. That's probably why there's so many same people in it. Very assembly line-like type thing. I don't really believe there was a a creative bone in it as far as compared to the fly and what it was trying to accomplish. One of those obligations rather than a full on, you know, let's make a film as opposed to here's a film to make. George Baker plays uh, Martin Delambre. Uh, he had some James Bond. We're kind of in a James Bond thing here in this, this week's, uh, he was in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, opposite George Lazenby, and then uh, opposite Roger Moore, The Spy Who Loved Me. And then Doctor Who reference number one, he played the character of Logan in the 1980 episode Full Circle, opposite the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker. Carol Gray plays Patricia Stanley, the femme fatale, I guess, of the piece. Uh, she was in some other films of the day, Island of Terror, The Devils of Darkness, and uh, the first of uh, our Fu Manchu references, I actually got a couple Fu Manchu references. She was in The Bride of Fu Manchu, opposite Christopher Lee. <laughs> the character of Ty, played by Burt Kwok. Oh, yeah. It was fun to see him. Kato from the Pink Panther films. Yes. And yes, he too had a Fu Manchu film. He was in the fiendish plot oh. of Fu Manchu, which featured Peter Sellers, which is probably how he got his role in that. Doctor Who reference number two, he played the character of Lin Fu Tu in Four to Doomsday in 1982, opposite the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison. Yvette Rees plays the character of Wan. Wan. And we've got to talk about her. So, what is the deal? Was she supposed to be Asian as well, like Thai? I think she was supposed to be Asian, obviously one of those cases where a Caucasian actress is trying to portray Asian doing so horribly. Horribly. And, and her appearance is just so not right no, for any nationality. And, and I don't I never really understood her secretive motives other than was it protecting the, the wife, wife the I missing think? wife yeah. I think so. It it I don't know. She came. She came across as odd, odd visually, odd performance, and I don't know. Her. I think her motives were just weird at times. I. I, I didn't like her character. Her character was an oddity. The seldom seen other brother Albert, who spends most of his time over in, in London, and but does ultimately play a key part in a rather horrific scene of the film, played by Michael Graham. Uh, both Yvette Rees and Michael Graham. Lots of TV work. That's about. Oh, I think this is maybe one of their few ventures into the genre. And uh, we have Inspector Shiraz comes back, which from a timeline perspective is, is a little odd. To me, he wouldn't have been alive anymore. And he's gone blind, apparently. He's in the film basically to have a connection to the first two. Odd, I, again, very odd the way the whole thing's handled. Uh, and uh, he's played by... Charles Carson, I didn't pull up anything on him. So. Yeah, different actor than who played him in the first one. Yeah, yeah, and another oddity that he was, I think, again, this was, it seemed to me like it was tacked on just to try to connect to the first two films, and, and 
doesn't really have much to do with the overall film itself. You can eliminate his character and the film would continue to move along again with, with, with a better script. You could have not had any connections and, or you could have connected better. I think you could have either made this film totally its own film or connected it a lot better to the previous two films. In either case, if you wanted to connect to the first two films, you didn't need the character of Inspector Shiraz because, again, he shouldn't have been alive. Devil's Advocate, perhaps. So this, the first two flies were one year apart. This was, what, six or seven years later? True. Remember, this is a time where people couldn't watch movies at home, pop it in the DVD player. They probably weren't as concerned with continuity. Uh, maybe. I mean, that, I think it's giving them more credit in this case, but well, just continuity a is point, a much bigger thing. Audiences, I don't think, would have noticed. Really. Back then, no, you're probably right. Now, continuity is a much bigger thing now because of the internet and the fact that, I mean, we have home video, and so, I mean, people will sit there and pick apart continuity discrepancies in a series of films. So, back at the time, yeah, they, they didn't really worry about that much. So, now we sit there and say, well, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Back at the time, no one probably noticed. Yeah. This is also in black and white. I don't know if we said that, which is even more odd than Return of the Fly being in black and white, seeing as how this is mid-60s. Yeah, I mean, a lot of films are being made in color. This is a transitionary time. You still had some black and white films being made, even as late as, as you know, Night of the Living Dead in 68 was black and white. Anything at this point in time that was made in black and white, even television shows, it was because of budgetary constraints. Everything was transitioning to color. And if you were doing black and white, it means somebody wasn't giving you the money to do color. I didn't have a lot of trivia on this one, other than, like I already mentioned, it was never released on uh, any type of home video until 2007. And it's still, the only way to get this is, is part of the box set. And... It's the only film in the series that doesn't star Vincent Price. But again, he shouldn't have been alive either, I don't think. Or he would have been older, but Vincent Price contractually wouldn't have been able to do this film because by this point, he was under contract to AIP and, and wouldn't have been allowed to do it. And I don't think he would have done this film. I don't know. He, oh, man, you know, if they were making these in modern times, he would have come back for a surprise cameo and it would have been him in the bed dying at the end and they would have gone to him. That would have been kind of cool. You're probably right. Instead of the spec. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Well, and then this, a rhetorical question, but, you know, some movies will say the end, question mark, or something. This one ends with, is this the end, question mark? And based on what we saw, it was, and I think we're thankful. Well, yeah, there was no children. Uh, Spoiler alert. Well, I, you know, technically, though, we don't, Albert was still alive, wasn't he? At the end of the film. Well, the, I mean, the way they were going, if this was a success, it could be any relative that crawled out of the woodwork. And I did want to also make a point real quickly. It's sort of similar, but not nearly as effective as the Universal Frankenstein movies. I mean, different generations well, of family true, members yeah. that you didn't know exist come true. back. And, you know, I call it the family business. You know, it's either bringing the dead to life or it's transporting people. Well, I think of the way Albert felt, it would have been very odd for him to come back in the fourth film and want to continue the experiments because he wasn't really an active participant. Right. And after what he did to his father, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, that would be hard-pressed to see he'd want to continue on with the experiments, let alone actually would have got caught, right? Because, I mean, they the police were on to this whole thing. So 
somebody was knocking at his door, I don't think he would have been held necessarily responsible because I think that he could probably express his, but he was still involved. Yeah, accessory. An accessory. So, I mean, certainly Philippe got a brother, so there could have been a third sister, you know, the the bride of the fly. Bride of the fly. <laughs> that's not a bad, that's not a bad, you know, I can see it now, you know. It, it could go, you could go places with It'll, it. I can just see that big head from Return of the Fly with a wedding veil on it. Christopher Mim, are you listening? <laughs> Bride of the Fly, coming 2020. I don't know. Think about it. Uh, I don't have anything else. And, you know, it's not a horrible movie. It certainly wasn't my favorite. There's a lot to pick apart about it. But, you know, I don't want to... It's not awful. I think we've seen worse. I would go back and rewatch the first two. I probably... Oh, wouldn't rewatch this one for a while at least and but it is part of my collection i'm happy to have it in my collection it wouldn't be something that i would purge well you're a completist i am a completist yes for the most part so it's not something i would get rid of but it's uh, if you are out there and for whatever reason are just wanting one or two films you could stop after the second be perfectly fine you're not going to miss anything by not watching curse of the fly and you're not going to gain much by watching it. But it's not a horrible movie. It just, it's got some plot deficiencies that I think could have been fixed with some, a little, not really, not even that much effort. A little bit of effort, and it could have been a bit more logical. Yeah. Well, let's see what Steve Turek had to say about it. Hey, Rich and Jeff, this is Steve Turek calling again. I just got done watching The Curse of the Fly as per your homework. <coughs> Excuse me. And I got to say, it was the first time I ever saw it. It was, it was definitely interesting. It was totally different than the uh, first two movies, only uh, loosely based on them from what I gathered. I did like the beginning. The beginning was great with the uh, window breaking, which almost made me wonder if this movie was originally filmed in 3D, but I found nothing with that. But that opening scene, uh, maybe they were thinking about doing it at one time. I don't know. And um, it was a very good opening. I I thought for me personally, I would have played up the insanity, insane or not insane, more before they revealed all the stuff. Shorter of playing up this insane or not insane, but we as the audience already knew that she was, um, that was not the call, not the effect that she was insane from what you'd seen since they already showed us that these guys, what these guys were up to. So it could have been a different movie that way, but I definitely did enjoy it. Um, it was a definitely good trilogy to watch. I think um, uh, people can get it on Amazon. I got it for less than $20, all three of them, plus a bonus disc, which I'm going to be watching soon, which has like a biography, A&E, Vincent Price um, show. So I'm looking forward to watching that in a little bit. Um, as to the first two movies, having the small head version of the fly and the big head version of the fly, I'm interested what you two guys think of which fly would you did you like the best? Personally, I, I like the small-headed version of the fly. Uh, I thought that was um, creepier and, um, and the way to go. Of course, the one I've seen in most of the stills, and every time you see the fly, it's always the big-headed version. Uh, but it's, it's not that far for me from the smaller-head one. But I really did like the small-head version. I'm interested to hear what you two guys think about it. Did you like the big-head fly or the small-head fly? Um, otherwise, you guys are doing again great job, and uh, look forward to hearing what you guys think about these three movies. 
Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you again, Steve, for all of your participation in this week's episode. I do want to mention that uh, Steve followed up online after this, and he gave his ranking of the three movies. And I think, Rich, you and I pretty much agree we'd rank up The Fly, Return, and then Curse of the Fly. Steve actually liked Curse of the Fly better than Return. And when I called him out on that and said, really? He said, yes, but the gap between The Fly and the other two was huge, and the gap between Return and Curse was very small. Personal preference, that's fine. There is no right or wrong. Just, I was kind of surprised. Yeah, I mean, these are, again, classic horror films, and I think in most cases I'd still prefer watching any of these classic horror films, even the bad ones, over a bad contemporary horror film, uh, because there's still a certain amount of just nostalgia feel watching an an old black and white uh, sci-fi or horror film that, to me, is always more enjoyable than watching even a, a contemporary 2018 horror film that's made poorly which we get a lot of them, and I avoid most of them. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? Wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly. Got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. So new business, quite a bit of new business this week. I think May seems to be a bigger month for history of horror, and there's a lot more coming out on home video. Let's start with May 8th when Shout Factory releases The House That Dripped Blood, movie that we discussed here on the show. On May 8th also is El Caminante, or The Devil Incarnate, which is the Paul Menashe movie uh, from Mondo Macabro. And then Enter the Devil from 1972, coming out on a label I've never heard of called Massacre Video. That probably gives us a pretty good indication of what that movie's about. There are a lot of these little obscure video companies popping up. Like, I just purchased something from Raro Video, a Blu-ray of The Long Hair of Death, and they're doing 
a Blu-ray of the picture of Dorian Gray, the 1973 film, later this year. So some of these obscure titles are popping up on some of these equally obscure uh, video companies, which is not a bad thing if, no, that's, if they're a good production. So. Yeah. See, we were talking earlier, you buy the rights to a movie and put it out and try to make a buck. I think so, yeah. I know, I know that the, the trick is... You know, following up on what you setting a, a very logical plan. I know that Dorado Films, for example, is, is having some problems. They got some issues, and they basically were taking a lot of money. They had multiple projects, and then didn't deliver on any of them. And so now they're trying to get caught up, and then they're planning the next step. And so I think with these companies, it's it's important to have a, a very you know enter enter in the the business. You know, with one or two films, knock it out of the park, follow up, have great customer service, and then maybe make a couple more, a couple more. So I, this, I've never heard of this company. This might be one of their first ventures, but I'm curious to see, you know, what they what they put out. Yeah. May 15th, Dr. Blood's Coffin from 1961 is coming on Shout. And then two trilogies that are coming out. One of them I'm really looking, I think we're both looking forward to one of them, and then the other you might be... I don't know if you'd be surprised. The It's Alive trilogy. It's Alive from 74. It Lives Again from 78. And then Island of the Alive in 87. I'm really looking forward to that. I love those It's Alive movies. It's been so long since I've seen those. However... Hey, that'd be a great... We should do that. I, I would be up for it totally. I remember vividly the clamshell video case with the green label from Warner Brothers when I worked at the video store. And that was the last time that I watched those was the 1980s. So I'd be totally up. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, Island of the Live is, gosh, that's even pushing 1990. That's out of our wheelhouse, but we can talk about it. I want to make a commitment now because the enjoyment I'll get from watching Carla's expression of watching these three films will probably be infinitely greater than the movies themselves. (laughs) So yes, we must do this. The other one that I don't know much about, but I'm really looking forward to, is the Bloodthirsty trilogy. The Vampire Doll, Lake of Dracula, Evil of Dracula. I know I tried to find Lake of Dracula when I did my trip around the world on the blog and couldn't find it. So I'm excited. These are Toho's vampire movies, right? Yeah, these have been on my radar, but they've been impossible to find. So, no, I'm picking these up when they come out in a couple weeks as we're recording. Absolutely. On the 22nd, we have uh, Last House on the Left from 72. We have Death Smiles on a Murderer from 1973. Those are both coming out from Arrow. And then on the 22nd from Shout is The Vampire and the Ballerina. Another one that that I used to have a bootleg of it. It found its way outside of my home and hasn't come back. So I'll be getting this one as well. I I don't think that I ever saw it, though. Maybe I did. It's not sticking with me, but it's Euro horror, right? It's not... I think so. I think so. It's not... And they... It must have been... I think it was on Comet in sometime in the last few months, and I never got around to, to watching it. I'd... Comet actually is doing very well at throwing some obscure films out there. They do a good mix of classic and contemporary or recent not necessarily contemporary but you know recent in the last 20 years it's absolutely free you don't even have to have a local affiliate you can get it on roku or apple tv uh it's readily available out there you just download the app and it's good to go so and finally on may 29th a a movie that i love 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 the reincarnation of peter proud 
It's coming from Kino Lorber. Have you ever seen that? No, I have not. It's not strictly horror, but it's reincarnation, and that was really big in the 70s, and it's a really good thriller with some naughty undertones. I, I just, I love that movie. My I, I wrote about it recently on the blog, so uh, and I did it under my 70s memories thing, so I talk about my mother taking me to see it, and probably wasn't appropriate for me to see it and all that so check that out but but good movie i and i that is one i will definitely buy on blu-ray i don't don't think i even have it on dvd birthdays i kind of there's a lot of birthdays in may and i kind of grouped them together we have a series of birthdays that are makeup artists in may jack pierce was born may 3rd 1889 so he's our universal and then phil leakey was born may 4th 1908 he's our hammer so two big uh, makeup artists there. Composers, we had Max Steiner, great, great composer, May 10th of 1888. And you may wonder why I'm putting this on here. Well, I speak to you listening. <laughs> Rich will know why Burt Bacharach is on here, born May 12th, 1928. Or will he? I, you know, I, I'm sitting here, I think I, I should know, but I'm going to say no. I don't know. And, and this is going to be an earworm for everyone once I say this. He wrote The Blob, the song The I Blob. I did not know that. Yes. <laughs> Which is going to be on Sven Gulli the second weekend of May. Yes, yes. We had a bunch of, of famous... song is now in my head. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Writers born in May. Uh, on May 5th, 1922, Joseph Stefano, who wrote Psycho. May 6th, 1868, Gaston LaRue, Phantom of the Opera. May 8th, 1940, Peter Benchley, Jaws. May 13th, 1907, Daphne de Moyer, The Birds. Birds. At the end, other things, too. And then Harlan Ellison, May 27th, 1934, a bunch of stuff. The perpetual <laughs> Star Trek Star reference Trek. there, if you want, if, if that'll the count as a reference. City on the Edge of Forever, which ah, is the best favorite Star Trek episode. episode of all time. Yeah, and his version, vastly different than the televised, because it incorporated a lot of drug smuggling and drug use, which they could not do in the late 1960s, but they did do a comic book adaptation of it a couple of years ago, which was really good, but it definitely, if you, did you read that comic mm-hmm. book? Yeah, it definitely, it just didn't feel like 1960s Star Trek. He was definitely ahead of his time, but uh, yeah, and he's a perpetually grumpy guy. He's, he's something mad at the world, but uh, legendary. Some directors born in May, Val Luton, May 7th, 1904, Jess Franco, May 12th, 1930, Andre de Toth, 515-1913, House of Wax, John Gilling, Hammer director, May 29th, 1912, and Franklin J. Schaffner, May 30th, 1920, Planet of the Apes. And then finally, actors, of course, we mentioned Vincent Price, May 27th, 1911, and if you'll recall... Last year at this time, we were doing a podcast with his birthday friends the same month. Peter Cushing was born on May 26, 1913, and Christopher Lee, May 27, 1922. So big month there. Anniversaries. Don't know the specific day, but Curse of the Fly came out in May of 1965. It Lives Again that we just talked about came out in May 10th of 78, and... It's sequel, the third movie, Island of the Live, May 15th, 1987. Martin, we've talked about that. Every Chance I Get came out May 10th of 78. And then more Vincent Price. Three, actually, Witchfinder General came out in the UK, May 15th, 1968. 
Abominable Dr. Fives, May 18th, 1971, and Madhouse, May 24th, 1974. And then finally, a movie came out May 26, 72. Another one of my favorites that I love, I've, but I saw it originally on TV, was The Other. Have you ever seen that? It's about the twin boys growing no. up. It's got a, yeah, it's really good. And then finally, the TV terror guide. What can we watch on TV in the month of May? We mentioned Comet earlier, and I, I do want to mention that at the end of the May, they're starting their Monster Summer, and that will begin May 27th with Gojira and Reptilicus. And they did say Gojira, not Godzilla, so I guess they're doing the original Japanese version, uh, which kind of surprises me. Actually, though, I think Gojira is becoming the more go-to yeah. now. Well, it should be. Uh, well, as it should. I mean, for so many years it wasn't available, so I think I think it is very much replacing uh, the Raymond Burr Godzilla. So. Yeah. On Sunday, May 13th, they're doing a Mommy Issues movie marathon. <laughs> and then their theme weeks for May, they have Haunted House movies, May 7th through 11th. Werewolf movies, May 14th through 18th. Outer Space movies, May 21st through 25th, and Strange Critters movies, May 28th through June 1st. I thought it was funny. A few weeks ago, we went to go see Cinema Agogo. I say we. I'm saying Carl and I, because Jeff couldn't go. I had a bad day at work. Yes, but uh, so we watched Killers from Space, 1954 Peter Graves movie. We get home, we settle into bed, I turn on the TV and surf the channels, and Killer from Space is Those on. both were on yes, Comet. Yes, yes, both. That and the Phantom Planet were on uh, Comet TV. I was, I kind of, cause the googly eyes again. So <laughs> I thought that was, that was pretty funny timing. Over on TCM that we usually talk about, not a lot in May. However, on May 11th, all day long, Todd Browning movies. And some I have never seen and I don't think, as far as I know, you can see unless you watch them on TCM. But we start out uh, 5.30 a.m. that day with The Unholy Three and ends at 5.45 p.m. with Miracles for Sale. So everything in between there, Mark of the Vampire Freaks, really be a, a great day is, to watch all those. Is the sound version of Unholy Three? I don't know. I think they're in chronological order, so it would be the early one. No, I'm pretty sure it's the silent. Okay, okay. Yeah, and a lot of those are Lon Chaney movies, by the way, if you didn't know. And then we've already mentioned this a couple times. I thought I'd start telling people what's on Svengoolie. We're recording today, May 5th. It'll be too late, but tonight, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers is on. Which is a first for Svengoolie. He's got some new contract, and so they're really not doing Universal films right now. They're throwing some different things out there, and so... And Ray Harryhausen, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Yeah, and, and on the 19th, 20 million miles to Earth. But next week is The Blob. I think we mentioned that. And then breaking all the, the pattern, May 26th again, Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo. Is this the third time this year that's That'd been be on? the second time okay. for that. But that's common for uh, Memorial Day weekend. Oh. He doesn't do A first movie. runs. Gotcha. On, so, um, and I don't know how many new movies he has, if the trend will continue on into the summer I would suspect maybe not. I'm not understanding his pattern right now. You're getting some great movies, but I don't know if his contract with Universal is definitively done. They did do a an Evan Costello film a few weeks ago, I think, Go yeah. to Mars, which was an, a Universal film. 
but I don't understand, you know, where, where everything stands. He did say that like creatures coming back. So maybe it's just, they're taking a break and, and going to go back to those classics. I mean, I love the classics, but they have been playing them for you know quite a few years. So it's nice to see a few new movies pop up. So I'd like to see him. If you go and look at the, his like listings of episodes, I'd like him to see, he's already done them. I'd like to see them replay like some of the hammer ones and things that they used well, to play. And there the was past. something that was played not too long ago. And I can't remember what the movie was, but it had been a long time since they played it. And they, played the original segments yeah i've seen and, that before as well and, and it was actually from pre me tv days it was a very old segment introduction segment but i can't remember what the movie was but it had been that they were able to pull that from the archives i, I would wish i'd have been able to see that i don't have a dvr that records local channels so i can't do that but i would have been interested to see some of the old stuff like that just for nostalgic sake so that's new business. Let's start to wrap this up. Do we have any announcements? What are we doing on our personal sites? I know we have a shared announcement to make, and I don't know. I think we might be overthinking the significance of this, but it is very sad for me that I've made the personal decision not to go to Monster Bash this year. And I've made the same decision. You and I talked about this because you and I, our first time at Monster Bash was last year. We did the trip together. We were going to make the trip this year, and it was going to be Carla's first time, and she's definitely enjoying all of this. She's been a big fantasy person for a long time, and she was very much into gaming and sci-fi. The monster movies is something that's been new to her, and she's loving it. Um, She's loved every movie, I think, practically, with one or two exceptions. So she was really looking forward to this. You know, it was essentially, we had to be adults and make a financial decision. Um, You've got your daughter's wedding coming up in the fall. And originally when I made the decision, it was, you know, we had just kind of come off the wedding and we knew that. And then ironically, bigger mom dropped and then we've got to buy a new air conditioner, folks. And then those aren't cheap. So it came down to, I think you and I could have pulled it off and we probably could have done it, but from a financial perspective, it was the smarter decision to put the money where it needed to go, and we both know that we're going to be there next year. You're right. I could absolutely could have done it, and the, it's more not the financial thing, although it is because I'm going to take any money I would have spent there and help contribute to the wedding. It's just the thought that my daughter's getting married in a few months, and I would make a decision to spend elsewhere when i i just really think parent wise it's a more mature decision to use that money in in the different way so uh, you know it's one of those real life decisions yeah we both made it and and i know that the connections we've made with both jonathan and and steven you know we that's the worst part about it is you know to be honest and everyone has said it it's just that we will not see those friends that we made last year and would be one of the primary reasons, even if I didn't think the programming was maybe as good or there weren't any guests I wanted to see. That doesn't matter. I, I really, I wanted to see Jonathan again. I promised him I was going to watch the Gamera movies before Monster Bash so we could <laughs> talk about him. That's the hard part about yeah, it. Yeah, it is. A lot of people have been saying that they wanted to meet Carla because they heard me talk about her ad nauseum last year, folks. I was, 
I was a month or two into the relationship. I couldn't shut up about it. And that really, you know, made, made her happy and me happy. But we are definitely making the commitment that we'll be there at next year's Bash. Well, and that's true. They made a mistake, if you ask me, by announcing what next year's is going to be when not only the summer one hasn't, but they have a fall Monster Bash, too. But when you look at this year's program, which is great, it's all great, but next year we're going to have Joshua Kennedy's the world premiere of House of the Gorgon with the Hammer Women, and the Hammer Women are going to be there. That is like... You couldn't keep me away from that. Exactly. I mean, and knowing that we'll do that for sure helps make it a little easier that we're not going this year. It, it does. It, it's it's a, a definite commitment from for from us because and I it's a commitment I've made to to Carla because I really want her to experience Monster Bash because I think it's something she'll enjoy. Um, she doesn't do incredibly well with big crowds, so I said you know Saturday might be a little bit tricky because it gets busy. Yeah. This is something she'll enjoy, as I know you and I had a blast. And, you know, we know Derek will be there. We know that Stephen and Jonathan will be there. Some of the other friends, you know, I know won't be there this year, it sounds like. I'm kind of hoping that some of those who aren't there next year will be there, or there this year will be there next year. People we're missing this year will be there as well. And that, of course, I think it's just going to be a lot of fun. And, and so it's something to to look forward to 13 months from now. You know, I know that uh, as soon as the hotel block opens up, I'll reserve the room for next year. I might be out the tickets. I do have tickets, and I'm going to try to see if. And I know that you know Ron Adams. You know that's a that's a slippery slope if you start doing that for everybody. But I'm going to see if I can get my tickets transferred to next year. If not, that's fine. I understand, and I'll just chalk it up. I bought them early with no you know expectation that we'd have to. To reschedule, but I think it's the right decision. And so, with that, uh, we won't obviously be doing any Monster Bash uh, discussion, but we are going to try to get Stephen Trek on next month's show to talk Dark Shadows uh, in his incredible journey of making it through the entire series in less than four months. We're going to talk to him about that madness uh, as well as cover the two 1970s Dark Shadow films. So that'll be on next month's episode. We already kind of have an idea of what July may be. We're kind of thinking it might be the Island of Lost Souls, Twilight People, Island of Dr. Moreau. Don't hold us to that. We'll know for sure next month. Even though we're not going to Monster Bash, Jeff and I have already talked that on that weekend... We're probably going to get together and watch monster movies. I want to watch a Bowery Boys movie. I've never seen one, and I would have done that at Monster Bash. So. Not bad. Uh, yeah. I, I have the two East Side Kids movies. So if you've never seen those with Bella Lugosi, yes, well, absolutely, we can we can sit down and watch. And that. you know what? You reminded me. I have not canceled my room yet. So if there's anyone out there who's a late goer and wants a room, I don't know how we could transfer it, but hit well, me up, and I could try to. I, th- I think what happened, I don't think you can transfer it, but I think once we cancel it, it opens up that, that room. Because so, I know so. that sometimes creepy classics will say there's a couple of rooms that just opened Have up. you canceled your room? I have not. And well, so, let, let's, we should let people know when we're going to do that yes. so that they can jump in and get it. So them. if you were wanting to, to stay at the hotel, look on Facebook. We'll wait until actually after this episode goes live. Maybe we'll try to coordinate the effort, but we'll definitely put it on Facebook and say, hey, we just canceled the room, and that would should free up uh, a couple of rooms for somebody who maybe couldn't get in. 
because you really want to stay at the hotel yes, if you can. Yes, yes, yes. It makes it a lot easier to go back and forth. There is so much activity in the lobby, which, I mean, you don't have to stay at the hotel to participate in, but it makes it easy when you don't have to get in your car and drive a block or two away, especially when you've got programming that goes to, like, 3 in the morning. And that is precious time you could try to sleep <laughs> that you would have to drive in exactly, your car. Exactly, <laughs> because we, you know, we did stay up late last year and see the the Samson movie. It struggled <laughs> through parts of it because it was late. Yeah, you definitely want to stay in the hotel if you can. So a couple of rooms will come available, and we'll post it on Facebook when we cancel those. So you can uh, reach out to them and hopefully hopefully get in on I'm pretty sure you should be able to get on the Monster Bash discount that way if, if they uh, the rooms open up. I don't know how that works, but certainly is at least you'll be able to get in the hotel. And we'll have one more episode before then, so we'll talk more then about uh, Derek's table and what he's doing Absolutely, and encourage yeah. people to... We'll let them know what we know about it if we have any, if we're privy to any information. So beyond that, do you have any plans coming up on your blog in the next? Uh, uh, I've, I've just started a new thing recently. You know, every week I say, "Oh, I want to write more." Well, I, I started this Friday fright thing. So at least three weeks now, I've posted a review on Friday for some movie that I've watched. Most recently was The Black Sleep, which I had never seen. Yeah, and I didn't bring it up, but if anyone has seen it. See if you find some parallels to Curse of the Fly. I sort of did. Yes. As yes. far as, a, well, here I am going to bring it up. But a doctor that you think is benevolent, but then you learn, oh, no, there's not. And he's keeping a room full of victims of his experiments hidden. Uh, in a bit the, more sinister. Or, yeah. Well, story, more overtly. But, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely but, comparisons. But, yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah. In fact, I was getting a little confused on which was which. You so. know what? When I see you post those, the, the local... Friday Fright Night on Casey that that, oh. that voice, you know. Friday Fright Night. Well, I uh, it goes in my mind. I love it though. I mean, that it's it's it's. Uh, I love yeah. No, I gotta you know have a theme or something. I can't just do anything simple. So well, that, that's what I'm doing. That's all I know to report right now. How about you? Well, I am. You know, last year I did the sci-fi horror fest where I tried to do a movie a week, and I did it. For probably the first two months, I think I kind of fell off in the third month. Life intervened. But I want to attempt it again this year because I've got a stack of sci-fi movies, related sci-fi horror films that I've been kind of collecting that I want to see. And uh, so I believe that I'm going to start that up probably before Memorial Day if I want to get in everything that I want to see between then and Labor Day. Because my mind, Labor Day is the end of summer. So... Um, and then that gives me a month to kind of ease into the 31 days of Halloween, which I'm going to do again this year. And I mentioned offline to Richard, I have an idea for this year, and it may involve him, it may involve other people, but it's, I think it's a little bit of a clever idea, and I'll just leave out there that it will provide a needed service to most of us who are monster kids. And I'm going to invite other people to participate. I I can't wait, really. I'm excited for that to come up. I know it's way early, but I've been thinking about it already. It's yeah, never too to. early yeah. for Halloween. <laughs> never too early. True. True. Uh, so, yeah, I you know, I, I think I'm going to start that up here before the month of May is up. And, and just it'll be one movie a week um, in kind of the format that I did last year. Just uh, a selection of films. and uh, Plus, it's fun as I watch these movies to have, you know, introduce Carla to some of these films. And it's fun to watch something I haven't seen before, because there's definitely most of these films 
I'm like the bubble that I've had for a while is one that's going to be on the list. I'm going to revisit Fantastic Planet, which I picked that up on. I believe Criterion Blu-ray. Oh, when's the next Criterion sale? Don't they do one in the summer? Yeah, yeah. Twice, twice a year. I think that it should be, be coming, coming up. up. It should be coming up. Sorry. So I may have to try to time my review on that with the Criterion sale because uh, that's a great movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it. There's there's some other films that I I purchased that I want to. Uh, I think The Lost World maybe is one of those I'm going to talk about. I picked that up on Flickr Alley Blu-ray. I definitely have some films that I've been wanting to see and it makes me kind of commit to seeing them and then I write about them and share them with everybody. So beyond that, it's been kind of quiet over at my blogs because it's been kind of busy, but recorded some segments for Dread Media that'll be coming up with some recent films and just popped up over at the Mimiverse audio cast this month. I was off for the April episode, but I dived back in for May with thoughts on Killers from Space and how it kind of compares to... The uh, Mimiverse film, it came from another world. Googly eyes in both of those. So that's what I've been up to. I think that's it. I'm about all talked out. Check out our Facebook group page. Give us a call. Send us a voicemail, an email. I think that that, that does about <laughs> you know Catch me at kccinephile.com oh, and yeah. monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. And, of course, as a reminder... We are available on iTunes now. You can just subscribe to our show. We don't have the older episodes uploaded yet. It's something we haven't done, but it's still on the list of things to do. But uh, they're still available on iTunes under the old uh, Downright Creepy Phantom Podcast Podcast Network. Network. Hopefully we'll have those up on our... But for now, all the forthcoming episodes, you just subscribe to our feed and you get uh, the episodes and we've had several people comment that they were happy that that we made the move nothing against where we were but now we're flying solo and we're also you can uh, listen to us on soundcloud and stitcher are we on stitcher no yeah we are yes we are definitely several ways to, to listen to us as well as i always have the latest episode up on my homepage, page at kc cinephile so you can go to that page and listen to it from there if you're in front of a computer, it'll play uh, on there as well. So we will leave you with another appropriately themed song, also called The Fly, this time by a little band. Have you ever heard of U2, Richard? Uh, a little indie band from the 80s, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing ever really they did a song called The Fly. Gosh, I, I don't know that I should have announced that. We may be the victim of a... A uh, copyright suit or something. We'll just play a little snippet of it. It's U2 spelled T O O. (laughs) Yes. Yes. E W E. It's a sheep band. Yes. Yes. All right. On that strange note, take care, everyone, and we will talk to you next month. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) 